Hey, welcome. This is the Left Coast Atheist. Uh, just one of us, actually, so it's singular, Left Coast Atheist. My name's John F. McDropout. I'm here with Ozymandias Ramses II and Gibran Ludwig. Uh, I approached you guys a little while ago um, to discuss uh, Van Til's Why I Believe in God. It's one of the, uh, I think, one of the more well-known um, pre-sup pamphlets that was put out by... Van Til, and uh, you know, it's 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 one of those things that you know really struck me when I first read it, um, and it's you know it's got a little bit of the element of the precept in it, so you know I thought we could uh, just start off with a discussion of it. Um, so uh, welcome, guys, and uh, thanks for joining me. No, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, might it help to say a little bit about who Cornelius Van Til is, and uh... sure, I bet you you'd have a much better idea of the uh, the history of Van Til. So if you if you could lay it on a little, maybe a little biography before we get started. Um, okay, well I can't lay out a biography because I don't know enough about him. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, he is a uh, a, a a theologian in the Reformed Calvinistic uh, tradition, and he wrote primarily in the I believe in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, um, and he is. Essentially, the 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 author of presuppositionalism as we know it today, um, and uh, one of his uh, intellectual successors, his, his protege, was uh, the late Greg Bonson, and there have been others since then. Uh, you know, John Frame and uh, Gordon Clark and others, uh, but Cornelius Van Til is the the fellow who who got this ball rolling, um, and the. Uh, the occasion of, of this discussion, this hangout, is uh, John F. McDropout uh, suggested that we uh, take a look at uh, an article he wrote. Uh, it's written in the style of a conversation, a one-sided conversation, an imaginary or hypothetical conversation where Cornelius Van Til is talking to an imaginary atheist, and it's called Why I Believe in God. And it's uh, not very long. It's about 15 pages or so. And uh, so I believe that all three of us here have, uh, have read it. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and that's what we're talking about today. And uh, Gibran, you wanted to start. You had some comments or some observations you wanted to make about it. Yeah, I, I wanted to I wanted to frame it um, a little bit because it is written in a somewhat odd style. And uh, my suggestion is that rather than reading it as a message to someone, because it uses you a lot, the pronoun you, uh, he seems to be addressing the reader. But I would contend that he's not. Um, He's instead sort of, it's essentially a Socratic dialogue between you, who is this hypothetical atheist, uh, who, who the reader may or may not identify with, and, and Van Til himself. And I, I just think framing it in that, that context makes the entire pamphlet make much more sense, because I've, I've sent it to a few people now, and they've, they've very quickly been very confused by it. Uh, and I, yeah, I think it's important to, I think it's valuable to read it as if it were a Socratic dialogue, or, or something in that vein. Um, yeah, so that's that's all I wanted to say. It's just framing the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's very much the the spirit in which it was written. I think uh, he just like a Socratic dialogue, a, a dialogue uh, written by Plato about Socrates, for instance, where Socrates is sort of the the the, the main player, and is always presented as uh, a, a discussion between Socrates and one or more uh, other characters, uh, and you get to hear what the other characters say. In this instance, it's it's. It, 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 there's only one voice talking all the way through, um, uh, but it, it won't make any sense unless you posit that there is an imaginary person to whom he is talking and uh, addressing directly. He's anticipating objections uh, on behalf of the person. He says, "Well, for instance, you know, now you're probably yes, you know, oh, you say this, yeah, of course you would say that. But here's what I would say to that, and that that sort of thing. So it's it's one side of a conversation, 
but uh, it's kind of like a, a comedy bit. You know, when Bob Newhart does a comedy bit where he's on the phone and you're only hearing his end of the conversation, and it's still hilarious because you're able to infer correctly what the other person who isn't speaking would have been saying. Um, so the the whole thing actually does make sense, provided you pause it. Uh, uh, essentially, a, an atheist uh, with a sort of modern, secular, scientific worldview who doesn't buy any of this uh, stuff about God and Christianity and all that sort of stuff. And uh, in the course of this, Cornelius Van Til is is explaining um, what uh, how he sees things, and he talks about it in the context of his upbringing, and he's trying to scotch certain standard objections that someone with a worldview similar to my own actually uh, would would raise the kinds of objections we would raise in a typical conversation with a, with a Christian and uh, he's trying to uh, in the course of this expose what the what someone like me uh, is presupposing he thinks um, and uh, and how these sorts of things essentially beg the question against his view and he's he's trying to uh, sort of turn that around and, and uh, show that these are, these objections are, are really not not very good. I'd actually say that, that what he's trying to demonstrate is that we we're we're really begging the question insofar as that we're proving that his God exists by by being forced to use it. So it, yeah 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 no, that, that's where he's going ultimately. Yeah no please go on though that's that's exactly right. Yeah yeah he's he's saying that we're sneaking in the premise that God exists into our argument against the existence of God and so it's kind of the opposite of begging the question to some extent. Um, uh, and and I the the problem is is that he spends pretty much the entire article or art, uh, article or pamphlet he doesn't really get into the argument itself he really he 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 sort of as as uh, John said um, he's kind of opening the atheist up he's he's getting them buttered up for the actual argument but he really doesn't present it in much of a form he. He, he kind of claims the argument's conclusion, but he doesn't present the premises or go through with the argument. And I think that that is, that is personally my biggest problem with the argument, um, is that it, it is not presented in this form. It's not presented in a coherent form where it, it actually uh, goes from the premises to the conclusion. Uh, or more accurately, from the premise, God does not exist, to the conclusion that there's a contradiction in that statement. Um, and because of that, it, it, it kind of falls flat, even though I think it's a fairly well-written pamphlet, and it brings up some interesting points. It, it fails to present its basic argument. Yeah, that's very much how I saw it. Uh, John, did you want to say something? I, I, well, I was, yeah, I was, I mean, I was just thinking about that. Um, I mean, it, it is interesting to think of it as, you know, um, not presenting the entire precept argument. Um, and, and, you know, I wonder, I was just wondering if that, you know, maybe they did that on purpose, or, you know, and I was trying to think of it as, you know, is this pamphlet sort of uh, a how to speak to atheists? Like, w would this be considered a, a witnessing uh, technique brochure in some in some ways, like a, a learning tool that uh, that other uh, Christians could use, uh, or or was it more of just a, a very philosophical kind of uh, in in-house dialogue, um, uh, you know, about the finer points of the of the theology? Uh, I actually thought of it. I mean, it, that, that question hadn't occurred to me while I was reading it, but um, I would certainly like it if, if presuppositionalists read this, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it, it, it's a polite conversation. Um, it's not full of, uh, of silly stumping questions. Uh, it, it, it tries to anticipate a lot of standard objections that a presuppositionalist is going to get. Um, some of them are, are not objections that I would raise myself, but th these are objections that are raised by people. 
uh, when talking to presuppositionalists. Um, and he sort of he handles those fairly handsomely, I, I thought. And I would like it if uh, more presuppositionalists on YouTube and such um, would actually uh, read this, and, and, and no doubt some of them have, but I mean, take this to heart, uh, how he presents uh, his case here. Um, I agree with Gibran, he doesn't sort of make the full case, but I don't think he's trying to make the full case for presuppositionalism. What I think he's trying to do is scotch certain standard objections and show, well, wait a minute, some of these objections uh, beg the question. And what I mean by beg the question is um, they, 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 they assume too much uh, against um, the presuppositionalist. Um, and, and, and Gibran's completely right that, that the conclusion that he's going towards, that Van Til is, is that ultimately you are, um, um, by virtue of making these arguments and objections, um, presupposing his God, borrowing capital from his worldview, as it's sometimes said. Uh, so that's where he's going with that. But he doesn't actually spell out that case. That's what's missing from this. Uh, nevertheless, I, I like the way he proceeds. Um, it's sort of it's uh, it's thoughtful and it's intelligent and it and it shows well. Look, some of these objections really aren't aren't very good. You know, the, one of the big uh, objections that he he anticipates is this objection of, well, you know, it's an accident of birth. You know, you happen to be born and reared and uh, educated in a in a Christian community and family and country, and so of course this is your worldview. You know, but for that fact, you know, you might be a Muslim now if you'd grown up somewhere else. And he, he does a really good job of, of showing, well, you know, essentially this is nothing to the point. And, uh, uh, and, and, then he turn, and there he turns the table on, on his imaginary atheist by saying, well, yes, okay, uh, you know, I have drunk in and had poured down my throat uh, yeah. my Christianity and theism, but you have had your sort of secular atheistic view poured down your throat. Sure. I got, um, yeah. I got the quote right here, actually. Um, it's, uh, if you want to say that belief was poured down my throat, I shall retort by saying that unbelief was poured down yours. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a very much like, you know, he's, he's saying that, you know, it, our, our presuppositions have affected our, you know, the way that we were brought up has affected the way that we are now viewing the world. And it's, uh, he's, uh, I mean, he's making a very good point that, uh, in, that, in that sense. Um, uh, I really like, you know, the idea of, you know, the accident of birth um, and then, you know, building on that. Uh, because, I mean, there is a lot to uh, debate over that, right? Um, just, you know, I think even, he even mentions that, uh, that, I mean, the accident of birth is sort of, they go into it because um, uh, the debate concerning heredity and environment is prominent in his day, right? So there's, there's, a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of background information there that, you know, he's, he's kind of, Taking in and, and using to his advantage, right? So that, I really like that idea, um, uh, especially to see it from. Uh, it's such an old pamphlet, or an old pamphlet for me, anyways. That uh, it, it's interesting to see what was current uh, modern uh, theology back then, and, and modern evidence, what considered modern uh, evidences back then. Um, so there's there's a, there's an interesting kind of retro uh, style to it, I guess you'd say. Yeah. What what year was it written? I, I don't remember. I, I tried to find out. Um, it hasn't it has a no date on it. Um, so I guess the press never listed the date. Um, but it has to be after 1968. Um, that was the first time that he ever puts anything on the uh, Presbyterian Church press. Uh, so that's that's the that's so I think that's the earliest it could have been. But okay, well, that makes can, sense. Can I raise an objection to something that, that, that you both uh, have claimed? I, 
I don't think that he actually does a very good job of addressing that argument, the, the argument about uh, accident of birth, because he very specifically says that what is important here is that, or it is important to recognize that, that both of us were born in, in, in a Christian nation, in the Christian world, and that completely undercuts his point. Um, I, I agree with him to some extent. I, I agree with him. I think it is invalid to say, well, you just believe in your God because you were born into a family that, that believes it, and therefore it's invalid. No, I think that that's a terrible argument. But his point that it has nothing to do with, with his background, or, or he, he kind of embraces it and he kind of defends against it, it's... It's a mix there. I don't. Yeah, I think it's undercut though by him. Him quite outrightly saying that that it is important that he was born in the Christian world. Yeah, no, that's a good objection. You're right. He he does undercut himself there. But um, in his defense, I I would say, well, um, it, you know, you can grow up in a Christian uh, country um, as as I did, uh, as many people did. But I mean, a lot of people grew up in a Christian nation that is essentially nominally Christian, um, and um, I mean, an ever-growing number of people are growing up in nominally Christian countries. That is, there's no state religion, and, um, you know, a lot of people are Christian in name only. Uh, you know, they might go to church, they might not. Uh, they sort of self-identify as, you know, weekly as, as, as Christian. Um, but they have grown up with an entirely secular worldview and gone to public schools that, that have been evacuated of, of religious teachings uh, in the curriculum, from the curriculum. So, you know, he might have something in mind like that, that, yeah, you, we both grew up in a Christian nation, uh, in a Christian country, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, where Christianity was sort of uh, uh, foundational to the, uh, to the existence of the civilization that we're in. I mean, he, he says something about Christian civilization, I think is what he says. Yeah, you're right. If yeah, uh, and so you know, I you know, I grew up in Canada. You know, I'm part of a sort of a, a Christian civilization, um, but you know, many many people don't grow up uh, Christian as a result because they're they're they have not had Christianity poured down their throats. Um, but what I did like about the argument was, it scotches this idea um, uh, that. Um, that atheism is a kind of default view. This is a this is something I I I, uh, I really disagree with uh, quite profoundly. That atheism is a default view. You know, we we, we grow up. We we're born not believing in a god. That's true. But we're not we're born not able to opine on the matter at all. But there comes a point in our life where we hear about God, and there comes a point in our lives where not only do we hear about God, but we're capable of forming an opinion one way or the other. And I think it's at that point that one can be properly described as an atheist. Or an agnostic, or a theist, uh, and, not, and not before. I just just as it's not right to say, sure. six-month-year-old child that the child is Muslim, um, you know, it's wrong to uh, characterize a, a six-month-old child as uh, an atheist. Now, this is slightly a separate argument. Uh, and while it's true that a, a six-month-old child doesn't believe in a god, uh, a six-month-old child can't opine on the question at all. And so I think it's sort of false to fact. To, because th these are terms that describe an attitude towards a certain proposition. You know, do you agree with this proposition or disagree with this proposition? However strongly or weakly you feel about it, whatever your reasons are. Um, and so I think that you know, uh, in a secular world, we really do grow up having a secular atheistic w a worldview poured down our throats. It's not done maliciously. It's not done that, uh, as deliberate um, indoctrination, but. You know, that's just the way it is when you grow up in a worldview. You you just take on the assumptions of of whatever is around you, including assumptions about what doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can I I say two things on that. Um, it would be like to say a, a six month old is an atheist is is 
to say that, or would be equivalent to saying that a six-month-old doesn't believe in evolution. I mean, it's true, but they have no conception of it, and so it's kind of a meaningless claim. Um, although I'd like to object to the second thing you said, though. Uh, I, I don't, for example, I was raised in a family that uh, was certainly not religious, but where everyone in it uh, believes in this kind of vague, positive God, but they wouldn't call it God because that term is religiously associated. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily think it's fair to say that, that, that this sort of secular, the secular worldview is necessarily poured down on our thoughts. Uh, unless, unless we're using secular correctly to mean uh, a-religious, uh, not, not regarding religion at all, in which case I would agree with you. But, but the, the, the part where I disagree is, is the atheistic part. I was raised in a family of people that believe in, in reincarnation and the soul. Um, and, and I believed that until I was about eight, and then I became an atheist because it was cool. Um, and, and then I've slowly actually come up with good reasons for that, and, and it changed my view a bit. Um, but, but yeah, it, I, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, though. I don't, I don't entirely agree that, that the secular worldview is necessarily poured down our throats. However, I had a very odd upbringing, and so I may not be a good representation in this case. Um, well, I don't think it matters how representative you are. I know, and I'll, I'll take the Philip that, yeah, uh, uh, it's perhaps overstating it to say um, that it's poured down your throat because, but I mean, I appreciate his point though that that we're biased even though we're atheists. I like that a lot. I think it's it's important to remember that. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, you don't have to apologize for interrupting. We, you know, let's just interrupt each other. <laughs> that sounds good. There's it's, only it's, three of us. It works. Exactly. You know? <laughs> when there's so, eight no, people I, I think I think maybe he's stating it in a little bit hyperbolic sense. Um, you know, he's trying to he's trying to true, prove. Uh, you know, maybe just just show the extreme from his position or what he what he sees as the extreme from his position. Um, but you know, I I took a you know when I first read this, I took great exception to it. Um, because I I actually. Uh, I actually relate more to his upbringing than the atheist upbringing, um, and you know I had I had belief poured down my throat. I would say, and it, you know for me it's it's an interest. It's 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 a little bit. It's almost like he's not talking to me, you know, um, or, or talking over my head a little bit uh, when he's when he's describing you know his his uh, his experience of his life, and then saying that you know well that's you know that's it's the same as as anybody else and you know i i just believe because you know that's that's what i was told it's it's sort of you know you like that's that's why i felt like it was maybe undercutting himself a little bit with the with the example but um but i i i think as as a hype, as a as hyperbole it actually makes maybe a lot of sense um so well i mean it i think it uh, aside from the hyperbole like there's a, a couple of points actually there's some background noise here is that a problem? Can you hear that? No, it's, it's gone now. It's gone now. No problem. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, the, the argument, in part, is sort of scotch this sort of ad hominem to try to dismiss a person's beliefs uh, by uh, appealing to their upbringing. You know, you only believe this because you know this is what you learned. Um, Uh, this oh, is individual because any you, specific individual Ozzy, can you just, uh, comes can you just by their that beliefs. So yeah, you're breaking up there. Sorry, Ozzy, if you, if you could repeat the last uh, the last sentence you said there. Sure, sure. I'm just going to turn down my camera resolution here, my, limit my bandwidth a little bit so that uh, if I can. Cool. Uh, What's limited now? Actually, I'm not sure if I can be heard. 
Uh, I can hear you now. I'll bring I, up I, your volume here. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, Gibran, you said something. Wait, uh, I said start, you wanted me to say what? Start back from ad hominem. That's where we kind of lost you. Oh, okay. <clears throat> it's um, it's intended to sort of scotch this ad hominem uh, argument, uh, where a person tries to dismiss an entire person's belief set um, or a specific chunk of the person's belief set simply by appeal to the the, the kind of upbringing they had. You know, it, it is certainly true that, that, that people do have the beliefs that they do because of where they were and who they met and who they knew and what they read and what they thought and, you know, yeah, sure, but that's true of everybody and so it, as a sort of a blanket dismissal, it's worthless. And it's certainly um, uh, a fallacy when you're addressing a specific individual because th that individual is right there in front of you and they can give you their reasons. Uh, now, if their reasons are, I believe because this is what I was taught, and then you could say, well, are there any other reasons, you know, besides the fact that, the, you know, and presumably they will. They will give you those reasons. And that's what he talks about. He says, well, look, I didn't just have this stuff poured down my throat, so to speak. You know, uh, you know I also went to school. Um, and I had friends, and I knew people who were outside my religion, and uh, I went to university. And, I, you know, I learned all the standard objections and uh, all the reasons why what I believe is false, you know, according to other people. And yet... I still believe. Um, so all of that has to be addressed. Uh, and and uh, it, it, you know, it, imagine if someone were to say to uh, to an atheist, "Well, the reason you're an atheist is because you know you grew up in a godless household." Well, so much for your atheism. You know, you would you just look at them like, "Well, what the hell?" Um, so <laughs> he's right to, to 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 make this objection. Everybody is right to make to make this objection when that argument is thrown at them. Um, it's best not to throw that objection at anybody. Um, it, yeah. and it has nothing to do with the fact of the demographics. Yes, of course. We, I mean, to point out that 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 people's beliefs are are conditioned, by, you know, by where they grew up and who they knew is, is, you know, that that's like saying, you know, you believe in evolution because you went to school and studied biology. You know, <laughs> like, you know, uh, that 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 that's not that's not an objection. Um, you know, uh, you know, you so you have to wait for the arguments and find out. Okay, well, is there anything to this education? It, it, was there anything to what you were taught and what you were learned? And so I thought he did a, a nice job of sort of just turning that around. He does it very, very quickly and gracefully, but he, he presents it as, well, if you say this, I can counter with this, and I can counter with this. Would that convince you? No. Well, there we go. Let's move on. And I think that's nice. That's, that, that, I think that's how these arguments have to go. And I, Go ahead, Jaron. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, think, I think we're both in agreement there. Uh, the, the one exception being that, that John was saying that he was, for example, raised in a household that does not fit his description at all. Um, but, but no, for the most part, I agree with you that, or no, I, I agree with you completely that, that dismissing someone's argument based on, on the fact that it was conditioned into them is, is utterly absurd. Um, and I think he is right to address that. Uh, somewhat, some flaws in how he addresses it, as, as John said, it's a bit hyperbolic, but I think it, it, it does the job well enough. Um, ironically, though, I yeah no I I think his his discussion of his schooling slightly undercut his point because he talked about how he basically spent almost all of his time in in these these really Christian schools surrounded by like with with one exception though he did say that he was he did two years of graduate study in philosophy uh, where he was uh, out of a Christian school besides that though it kind of doesn't help his case where he was he relates being told by teachers none of these objections are valid. So you can just ignore them. Like that actually hurts his case considerably because, it, yeah. Beyond that, though, I, I think I think it's good to to to, to deal with that objection. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's there's a lot there's a lot in this uh, in this document about um, his kind of further years on. Um, 
in, in his schooling. And yeah, I mean, he does mention that, that he goes to university and he does hear all the standard objections from people who actually believe it, right? Um, uh, but, you know, I, when I looked into it, it looked like he went to... Um, I mean, he went to Princeton, right, for his uh, philosophy training? And wasn't that a Calvinist uh, seminary back when he went to it? Um, yeah, yeah, he even alludes to the fact that it sort of, it had this sort of this, the, the, right, yeah, the, a lot of the theology expunged from it. Uh, you know, he, oh, he sort of mentions right. Princeton and then says, well, this was before, you know, uh, it was this was in the good old days when it was uh, uh, overtly non-secular and, and Christian. <laughs> Okay, so I guess I was wrong. That doesn't that doesn't help his case at all. Yeah, no, <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, no. He he pretty much just yeah states right out that I mean he n never received schooling from from a place that uh, did not agree with his theology to begin with. So there's there's sort of a sort of a weird undercutting there, anyways. But uh, well, yeah. no, it only it only undercuts it if you if you if you're trying to make the the, the claim that. That um, in the I course guess, of yeah. his education, he didn't actually hear the objections. I'm right. sure he did. Yeah. You know, of well, course he did. But but whether or not he heard the actual objections or or straw man version of those objections um, is is the question that that I would ask. Uh, having someone who 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 actively thinks that something is false present to you that thing that they believe to be false you're probably not going to get a particularly unbiased uh, version of it. However, I would say that to be fair to him. Um, his point, in some ways, isn't undercut by this because his his point is that we are all we all grow up in these these biased environments, and so it it, it is equally biased of us to be to grow up without any Christian schooling, is what he's saying. Because you either are against Christianity or for Christianity, which is a dichotomy I find somewhat objectionable. But but regardless, that kind of doesn't in some ways it doesn't hurt his point as much as I would have thought earlier. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's hitting the nail on the head there, Gibran. Um, uh, he would say, well, look, if you went to secular schools your whole life, you've never had, you know, uh, the, the case that I would have presented uh, to you or that someone on, from my side would have presented to you. So I think that's fine. We have to make sure we don't tread into the ad, the ad hominem by pointing out that he's never had the, uh, um, you know, uh, by, you know, the, the, the proper counter arguments. But I mean, you know, if he went to uh, an institution like Princeton. You know, if you go to some place like you know, uh, you know, a, th a theological seminary, you know, a place like Princeton, you can be sure you're going to get uh, the proper arguments. Uh, it, this isn't this isn't Jerry Falwell's Liberty University or something like that. You know, some some joke uh, of. Uh, of a university when it uh, when it comes to these kinds of questions, right? This was serious, you know? <laughs> you know. So I'm confident that he actually did hear the objections. I think what would have happened though is not that he didn't encounter the objections and didn't read, um, uh, the, you know, the proper sources well articulated. It's that you know the argument that might be put is well, how forcefully was this defended by anyone? How forcefully did the professor take it up? Perhaps you know. But a good philosophy professor will do that. Will take up the position of the person, you know, who wrote the book or the article or whatever that that, that the class is is studying. You know, I mean, I've done this. You know, and on, on, I mean, I did a little bit of teaching in philosophy, and you know, I, when I'm presenting Anselm's ontological argument, you know, I'm pre I'm pretending I'm Anselm. I'm arguing, you know, on all eight cylinders on behalf of Anselm. You know, it's a, it's a tough sell in in the modern age to to get people to 
to, to, to think like someone from the 11th century uh, and to get them to understand that it doesn't matter that he was from the 11th century. You've got to, you can't dismiss him on that, on that basis. So he would have had that kind of high caliber education uh, yeah. at an institution like that. I agree with you to some extent, but the thing is, is that if you don't believe in it and you haven't been immersed in studying it your entire life, you're simply not going to be able to provide as good of a defense as someone that has, even if, even if you're trying, even if, like, yeah. I, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, a qualified professor does this. That's what they do, you know, like, you know, the, the mark of a good professor, of, of like, not in every field, it doesn't matter, but in every field, but like in the humanities, you know, or philosophy in particular is what we're talking about, the mark of a good professor or a good instructor is someone who can present the, 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 the position really convincingly that makes you, gives you pause, right? So presumably he would have had that. I mean, you know, we're speculating here, of course, but I mean, to, to, to suggest that, well, they, you know, if they didn't believe it, how, how forcefully and sincerely could they they've put it forward yeah, convincingly? I mean, that you would have the same problem in a secular school, you know. How, how forcefully was Christianity presented in your humanities class or, you know, your moral and social development class or your religious ed class or something like that? Well, I agree. I agree. Yeah, so that, that would be the sort of the, the counter-argument to that. No, and, and I would agree with that counter-argument. Um, uh, the point I was trying to make was not that these people are bad professors, but that even a good professor that isn't really well acquainted with that particular yeah is not going to be able to provide a particularly good defense of it. That's yeah. that's what I was that's what I was talking about. No, that well that's perfectly true. Yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, if you've ever been to university and <laughs> had the misfortune of being, you know, in the class of, of someone who whose biases are are uh, all too clear and they have a hard time making a case for views that they don't don't agree with. It's very, very dissatisfying. It's just it, it's a terrible way to learn. You know, you, you find yourself having to you know argue on behalf of of, uh, of the material that you're reading against the professor. <laughs> you know, it's awful when that happens. Um, it's a good exercise, but I mean, it's better if the professor helps you to understand the material rather than throws up obstacles to you appreciating what the uh, what's been put before you. Yeah. yeah, you would hope if they're a professor that they. I mean, they're. They're really they're a lot more familiar with it than the students would be, right? And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. At the very least, you know, uh, I suppose when you go to university, you're kind of expecting a certain amount of expertise to be transferred uh, in the classes, right? So I guess yeah, yeah. instead of accredited one. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, in an accredited one, you would expect that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> accreditation isn't what it used to be, maybe. <laughs> uh, they all say that. Um, yeah, do, do do you want to say anything, uh, uh, John? We've been kind of dominating. No, no, no problem, guys. I'm like, I'm actually like, I'm having a having a great time and really enjoying it. Um, well, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm I'm little. I'm just looking at the time here, and I know we got a lot a lot to go through. We've only covered really uh, later schooling so far. Um, okay, well, jump in you know, with quotes or whatever. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a couple there's a couple analogies here that I really enjoy. I don't know. I don't know if you guys noticed a lot. I mean, he's he's really actually really good at at, uh, at building building pretty good analogies, or at least pointing them out and building them into a story. Um, but one of the ones that uh, really caught me was uh, the, what is it here, the the Valley of the Blind? Um, which one is here? Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, a young man who was out hunting fell over a precipice into the Valley of the Blind. There was no escape. The blind man did not understand him when he spoke of seeing the sun and colors of the rainbow, but a fine young lady did understand him when he spoke the language of love. 
The father of the girl would not consent to the marriage of his daughter to a lunatic who spoke so often of things that did not exist. But the great psychologists of the blind man's university offered to cure him of his lunacy by sewing up his eyelids. Then they assured him he would be normal like everybody else. But the simple seer went on protesting that he did see the sun. Um, I yeah, I, that that kind of caught me off guard for a second. Uh, you know, it's it it kind of makes sense until you think about it for about five minutes, and then uh, and then it kind of falls apart. But well, there, there's something I like about it. Um, uh, I mean, besides being beautifully evocative and sort of reminiscent of Plato's allegory of the cave, and mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, one thing I like about it is it makes a point. Um, that well, it's something that we sort of we atheists tend to to sort of sweep aside uh, a little too easily. When a person says, look, I have a religious experience, I'm a person of faith, and they tell us, you know, look, all you have to do is get on your knees, confess that you're a sinner, accept Christ as your personal savior, and then you'll see. What they're suggesting is a, a sort of a different epistemological mode here. We normally think evidence first, belief next, okay? You know, this is sort of a principle of good reasoning, right? I need I need the facts first, right? And what they're suggesting is, no, 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 belief on the, you know, or evidence on the installment plan. Believe first, and it, and it is an effect of the belief, of that leap of faith, of that acceptance, that the evidence will come. It will be bestowed as a gift. There will be this self-authenticating testimony, uh, you know, uh, at some kind of inner experience um, that will be self-authenticating, self-attesting. Uh, it will it will seem uh, undeniable to you. You will have the evidence that you're 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 now asking me for, but I can't give it to you. It doesn't come from me. The evidence comes from above, and 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 but there's a con there's only one way to get there, it, and and it's not by looking around or anything like that. And so th that's sort of what this this analogy. Um, is getting at it's that that kind of thing that look you're what you're when when you say no show me the evidence show me the evidence look my claim is precisely that the evidence is not to be given the evidence is not like the evidence of you know material objects and stuff like that um, the the evidence c comes through a different channel uh, and it comes under different conditions and for you to simply ins insist no that's not good enough is simply to insist on your conception and standard of evidence and I'm asking you to be open-minded about this and think of yourself perhaps as um, one of the, the people in the in this sort of civilization of the blind this valley of the blind um, and that I am like someone a sighted person um, who has some some capacity to understand a, a certain category of facts that you are in no epistemic position to judge and of course by your lights or <laughs> close eyes it seems like I'm the crazy one mm -hmm. and what you're asking me to do is that I should show my uh, sew my eyes shut uh, and adopt your standard of evidence and sort of you know live in the benighted condition that you're in but I you know I'm asking you to be sort of open-minded but that's that's sort of one of the things that this analogy does yeah and it has yeah. the added benefit of also suggesting that um, atheists are lacking a sense perception that uh, that theists uh, somehow somewhat have um, so th there is there's a lot of a lot of positive spin you can get off that off of that analogy. Yeah, well, Ron, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the the interesting possibility that I think the analogy suggests is that uh, theists have some some mechanism or as you said some sense that that we do not have access to that we simply it is as if we were born without eyes. We we 
have no way of, of accessing this God or this experience that they do have access to. In that sense, we are the deformed ones. We're the ones that are lacking in this ability. And I think that in some cases, we, we, can't, we can't completely dismiss it. We can, we can say that it is unlikely, and, and we can be doubtful of this possibility, but it is not something we can entirely dismiss. Well, and how would you say it's doubtful, though? On what basis would you be saying that it's doubtful without merely assi uh, assuming your standard of evidence against theirs? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's complicated. Um, I would have to cite, I would have to cite cases of people uh, transitioning between being atheists and theists, and from theist to atheist. Either they would be losing or gaining this ability that, that, as I said, we would be innately born with or born without, and that would either suggest that these people were ignoring their sense that they had all along, or were making it up in their own mind. Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, I think Van Til actually kind of expands on that a little bit. Um, even before he brings up that analogy, he he states that everybody wears colored glasses, uh, and he kind of leaves it at that until a little bit later, where he says that um, everybody's got colored glasses cemented on, like people who don't believe have colored glasses cemented on their on their face, uh, and so they can't. They are they are seeing the wrong spectrum, right? Um, and that's that's sort of his argument that you have that sense, you're just seeing it wrong. Um, so it would be like colored colored glasses instead of being blind, right? Um, I think I think maybe the analogy of the blind, the valley of the blind, is sort of uh, like hyperbole, like like uh, some of this. Well, I would is, right? I would suggest that that the valley of the blind, where where some people do not have this sense is a possibility as well. It may not be what he was trying to get at, but I think it's an actually a much more intriguing possibility mm -hmm. uh, in some ways. It, not necessarily a, a possibility I believe, but one that I find interesting to consider. Uh, and it would be a challenge to my atheism because it would demonstrate that if, while there is a God, I simply am physically incapable of experiencing it. I, I think that's an interesting possibility, not, as I said, a likely one. If I could interject here with uh, with sort of the sort of the reformed view on this, um, it's not just the reformed view either. A lot of Christians view it this way. Um, sort of the valley of the blind kind of oversells it because you know you know we're sort of imagining a, a, a population of people who who are all congenitally blind, congenitally blind and cannot see. Not no matter what they do, they're not going to be able to see. Mm -hmm. You know, but let, let, let's imagine that these are this is a valley of of the blindfolded. <laughs> Um, and uh, and you're in there trying to get people. Just you just need to try to take off the blindfold. No, 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 no. We have all all kinds of fine reasons why we must never take off our blindfolds. You know, um, and so everyone's walking around you, with a kind of self-imposed blindness. Uh, this is how a lot of Christians uh, see this, and certainly people within the Reformed Calvinistic tradition absolutely see it this way. What they see is that. Um, okay. Well, their view is that there's a sensus divinitatis, that there's a sense of, of like a like a sense, like a sixth sense, like a sense of like a sense of balance or proprioception or something like that. There's a there, we, there's a capacity within us to um, to to apprehend and understand God, you know. And there's all kinds of indicators, you know. There, as they see it, there's all of creation and and all of the sort of the the beauty of the world, the order of the world. Um, you know, uh, in, in modern parlance, you know, all the specified complexity of the world and stuff like that. Um, uh, all of this is evidence prima facie of design, and, and hence a, a designer. Uh, they would see it, um, that uh, they would say something like, uh, you know, you have uh, a, a, the concept of right and wrong in you that's hard to anchor in, in anything, just the, that very concept of right and wrong. And then, of course, you have 
a, a conscience. There's, you know, you feel bad when you're entertaining a course of action that you you yourself judge to be wrong, even if you might change your mind later about it being wrong. While you're thinking that it's wrong, when you're entertaining a course of action that you yourself feel is wrong, you feel bad about it. You feel guilty. You have you have a conscience, even if your conscience is not properly calibrated. You have a conscience, and you know this is sort of something other animals don't have. This is something put in uh, in you that points to God. Uh, there are other things, but this is the the kind of thing that they're talking about, and that um, at some point, um, you know, you can cultivate this or improve or or, or fine tune this, this sort of sense of the divine. You can your understanding, your apprehension of God, your vision. You know, you can imagine it's like it's like wearing multiple blindfolds. Okay, they're all translucent. You, know, you got enough of them, you can't see a thing. But you can sort of peel them off, one by one, and slowly, you can um, sort of um, uh, improve and see and apprehend the divine nature and your your place in the world. And and this this idea. The idea is that we're blinded by sin. Right? The blindfolds, the multiple layers of blindfolds, are our original sin and our own sins. And uh, when you sort of uh, take the leap of faith, accept Christ as your Savior, um, there is a, a process of, of what they call regeneration. Um, your, your, your spirit gets regenerated, and you come to be able to, to, to see rightly, to think rightly, to reason rightly, not just morally, but you know, in general, so that you can see things for what they are. Um, um, despite what you've been told, uh, that's sort of how they see it. So maybe the valley of the blind is a low, I mean, maybe it's the the valley of the people wearing many, many, many blindfolds who refuse to take them off. Maybe that's maybe that would help sort of understand what what he's getting at there. No, uh, no, I, yeah, I, I I recognize that. I was just suggesting that there's there's this other possibility that that um the not necessarily that people believe this possibility, but that it is an interesting possibility, and I think one we must consider. Uh, I, I I understand that that isn't what people believe, or for the most part believe, but but I was just just advancing the hypothetical. <laughs> um, cool. I, you know, I, I agree. It is it is an intriguing idea um, that there may be a sense that that we're missing or whatever, and it, it it's it's intriguing because it, we would be able to test for it, right? I mean, I think that's what that's what makes it makes it the most. Uh, the most uh, interesting idea. Well, how would you test for it? Like, I would hmm. say we wouldn't be able to. I mean, unless yeah. it's... It depends on whether or not it's like a, a physical organ that is malformed in some of us or not formed at all. Um, but, uh, I mean, it could be... It could even be part of an organ that we've already identified a purpose for and that we simply cannot identify the bit that is malformed. Imagine, like, it's part of our physical heart that in some people is malformed and in others is well formed, but we would never identify the heart as being damaged because this part of it was lacking. Um, so I would I would say that we couldn't test for it, and that's actually in some ways what makes it kind of intriguing, uh, or potentially not test for it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, I like that analogy. Shibran, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. could I could I uh, pick up on something you said earlier about? Um, oh dear, I don't know if I can remember it now. Jeez, um, just as I was saying, it just fled from my thoughts. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> okay, well, let's press on. I'm sorry. Cool. No problem. Could you come back to that if you if you uh, if you remember? Okay. Yeah, totally. Um, I was gonna I was gonna go into. Um, I kind of had a question about uh, God being described as the all conditioner. Um, 
Did you, I mean, I, I know that's, that's probably comes from somewhere else in the theology, um, but I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, so is, is that a common thing within Calvinist theology or has it, have you guys heard about that or? No, I'll confess. I'll confess. I don't. I don't know that expression. I mean, I know it's sort of when we talk about something being conditioned. You know, it's it, he's sort of imagining that that everything depends on God. Everything rests on God. Um, God is the cause of all causes. Um, you, you know, everything that makes sense makes sense because of God. Um, you know, uh, I think he's alluding to that. But I mean, I, I confess, I'm I'm not clear where, what he's getting at with that exactly. I could be wrong. Yeah. yeah, I don't know much about Calvinist theology, so I'm I'm lost as well. Yeah, it's too bad we don't have a uh, a, a Calvinist with us right now. Um, I'm sure there's probably a few watching. Uh, the word presuppositionalism usually grabs a few people. But. <laughs> um, well, if anyone's watching, yeah, who knows exactly what is supposed to mean? Just maybe put it in the comments, and maybe uh, someone. Uh, I'm not looking at comments, but maybe I'm uh, I'm tracking them right looking, now. So if they can, uh, if they come up, I'll see them. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, he describes it as... Okay. Uh, I would track them, but I can't multitask. <laughs> no problem. I'm, I'm having trouble myself here. Uh, you know, he says, you know, it was, it was he who conditioned all that conditioned me in my early life. But then it was he who conditioned everything that conditioned you in your early life. So the God of Christianity is the all-conditioner. As the all-conditioner, God is the all-conscious one. And that he, he leaves that as a period there. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain what he means by all-conditioner or... All, I mean, as all conditioner, I kind of get that he's saying he set up all the conditions that make you, you, or me, me, let's say. Yeah. yeah. Alternatively, it may mean, I mean, given that he's a Calvinist, it seems more likely that he set up the conditions, but it is also possible to read that as meaning that God is constantly responsible for them, that he's responsible for continuing the laws of nature. He's, he's responsible for enforcing them, not just creating them. Uh, but I don't think that that's the correct interpretation based on his theology. Um, however, I would say that all conscious one probably refers to God's omniscience in his view. Hmm. I, I well, maybe maybe I'll just go on here. Maybe there's a little bit of context here. So, oh, uh, I, hang on, if I may. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm starting to remember what I was trying to say. Sure, uh, bring but, it up, but, please. Uh, but Shabrani, you you could help me with this. You were talking about how you would um, you would uh, sort of uh, uh, rebut a, a certain claim or, or address a certain claim. Uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you would look at how uh, people who were um, theists who, t who turned into atheists and and, and oh, vice versa. Yes, could you yes. could you just repeat the point you were making? Because I know that what I was going to say was on right on that. And sure. uh, so what I said is that I would rebut the idea that, or I would say that, that the fact that atheists can turn into theists and theists can turn into atheists is at least evidence for the idea that. That, that atheists and theists are different because they have some sort of sensor that that sense God and, and the atheist cannot. It is a physical sensor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I remember now what the point was, if I may. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, it was in connection with this uh, this idea that that not that there's a sensor or a detector within you. Uh, nothing like the sensus divinitatis or anything like that. But that it, it was in connection with this idea of. Um, the you, you believe first the evidence comes later um, that there and the evidence comes in the form of I mean the, the, the conclusive evidence comes in the form of uh, sort of a, an inner experience that is self-authenticating and self-attesting and undeniable um, and 
uh, I mean, if if that were true, well, of course, you couldn't argue people out of this view. It would seem to me, it you know, you, it should it should be almost impossible to argue them out of this view. Um, and uh, but so you're you're right on point, I think. There, um, there's something fishy here. You if you if the fact that there are theists who become atheists and then they describe they redescribe what they were experiencing and say, you know, upon reflection, I realize this, you know. The feeling that I had inside me, this the, what I thought was a, a self-attesting, self-authenticating experience, uh, proof God. I realize now was something else. I mean, that is really prima facie very strong evidence against anyone who claims that there is genuinely such an experience. Um, similarly, the fact that people of other uh, make similar claims. This is what I wanted to add. The fact that people of faiths make similar sorts of claims um, for their gods and their theological concepts, I, I think, is sort of another good way to, to sort of counter that argument. You're uh, you're breaking up again a little bit, Ozzy. You might want to turn the bandwidth down a tiny bit. Um, uh, however, a, a, a counterpoint to, to what I just said, unfortunately, and what you just said is is the they were never true Christians to begin with, um, which is to say that they were they were truly imagining these experiences, but real Christians actually have them, and you really unfortunately it's it's kind of hard to argue with that. It, it, it's a ridiculous statement in some some sense, but I mean if it is true, then you're kind of yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think that really is not a very yeah, I don't. I really don't think that's a very good rebuttal. I mean, uh, you know, that 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 rebuttal is is exactly what you would predict. What's that? Well, it's not convincing to us, but but the point is, it, it it's convincing to them, and that's that's what protects them from that 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 claim. It isn't at all convincing to me or or you, but but it may be convincing to someone that does believe this. Right, right. No, but uh, the, the the problem is that. When you consider that there are people of other faiths who make the same claim, mm. right? You have to say, well, look, I don't have it. It doesn't have to be convincing to you. It has to be convincing to me. So maybe it's not convincing to you, the believer. Maybe you know, maybe you're convinced that all those people who um, uh, used to be Christians or claim merely claim to be Christians by your lights um, uh, never really had the experience. I, as a non-believer, am left with this this choice to make. Well, you know. I have I have this evidence, and I have to take this. This is evidence I can take at face value. I can take your claim at face value that you have this experience. But another claim I have to take at face value is one that mitigates against your claim, which is that you know people say who've made the same claim will will tell me, no, I was mistaken about this. You yourself, who are making this claim now, could change your mind tomorrow from from where I sit, and while, and your insistence that you could never change your mind. Is not a piece of evidence. Um, it, it is not something you can demonstrate, right? Um, and the fact that there are people of other faiths doing it, so you know, uh, making the same claim uh, um, suggests that this is a claim that is all too easy to make. Um, and it is, of course, sort of, uh, an instance of the no true Scotsman fallacy. Um, you've 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 made this hypothesis uh, one that it's impossible for me to evaluate. Uh, you 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 described it in such a way that I there's no way for me to evaluate this in your favor. Uh, I, I just have to look and say, well, you say you have this experience you could never doubt. This person tells me he, he used to have this experience, and now months later he tells me, yeah, I know I was I was wrong. I wasn't bullshitting when I said that. Sorry for the language, but I mean I wasn't just BSing when I when I said this. I was just really 
confused and mistaken, and I sincerely believed it when I said it, but in hindsight I realized I was simply misdescribing my own experiences, in, in, and I was construing things that were happening uh, to me in light of what my theology dictated I should, should be experiencing. Um, and from the outside, I mean, I have to take both those claims very seriously, and one completely undermines the other. Um, so I, I find myself with, and since I haven't had the experience, of course, that's what tips the, the, the scale in favor of one over the other. You know, I, I, I can't be sort of stuck in a position of indecision here. I can actually look at this and go, well, it doesn't square with my experience. If it happened to me, well, then I would know, but it hasn't. They've also they've essentially made the claim unfalsifiable because they've said that anyone that does have this, ex or claims to have this experience, and then later says they didn't, didn't actually have it in the first place, and anyone that claims right. to have it and continues that claim did really have it. So, yeah, I agree. It's impossible to evaluate. It's just, it's essentially meaningless, uh, or at least meaningless to us from, from the point of evaluating. But unfortunately, I mean, that doesn't mean it's not true. It means it's a, it's a, it's a position that is of, of no predictive value at all, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's false. Yeah, well, it has no probative value, even for them, when they hear it coming out of the mouths of people of another faith. Sure. Right, and the fact that it, it doesn't convince them, <laughs> right, um, isn't isn't uh, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't convince them when they're hearing it uh, coming out of the mouths of of people of another faith, and and they might try to say, well, look, okay, yes, but you know, when I have this experience, my experience is that it's of a monotheistic God who is the only God, you know, um, but now you're really availing yourself of your theology here. I mean, do people really have an experience um, that um, there is a monotheistic God, and that such a God is the only God. Is that the experience you're having? There's that much propositional content built into this experience? I mean, you're, you're building into the experience now. You're defining into the experience um, so much of your theology. Um, it's uh, it, This is no longer an experience that you're having. I don't know what to call it. You're, you're, you're having a theology. You're having a theological moment. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> My point, though, is that, that um, even if it is unconvincing, it doesn't actually mean it's necessarily wrong. It is hypothetically possible that, that one oh, yeah. do it. That's all I would say. It, it's not a convincing claim. It is unfalsifiable. I see it as useless, but it's, it, that does not make it false necessarily. And, and a true believer is going to latch on to that. I mean, that's unfortunately probably what's going to happen. Do you, uh, I, I think we may have lost Ozzy. Ozzy, you still there? Oh, looks like he's still active. Okay. Um, you wanna you wanna say something, John? <laughs> uh, I was uh, I'm I'm pretty interested in that conversation, but uh, maybe we should move on here just just in an effort to keep it uh, rolling along. Um, <laughs> it just I mean, there is so much so much to go to go through in that on that uh, that one analogy. It's really it's really amazing when you think about it. Um. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it kind of speaks to the I think the the impact that this this pamphlet had, right? Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of great metaphors and analogies that uh, that he uses that seem to really emphasize his point, anyways. And I, I think he he does a good job of it. Um, I was uh, I was curious to move on to what is it here? Uh, kind of along the same lines, he's got another analogy um, of. Uh, an immigrant of a miracle. Um, he kind of goes into the idea that uh, that miracles being unique makes them uh, untestable, right? Uh, and so it's sort of along the same lines as you guys were talking here. Um, 
that that when um when something is uh has if miracles what does he say if miracles want scientific st- uh, have scientific standing uh they have to sue for admittance at the port of the mainland to scientific endeavor um and uh and that in order to given be given admission they must go through the process of generalization which deprives them of their uniqueness um and so that's it's a really interesting uh idea of of miracles um trying to immigrate into uh scientific land uh so i don't know if you guys, did you guys uh read it, read anything into that or uh do you do you recall that Ozzy, um when you read through yeah yeah that was that was my favorite uh uh metaphor um, uh, and it's sort of yeah i mean it kind of cuts into what you guys were talking about there um with with things being un, untestable um when it just i mean he does bring up the point that i mean uh miracles kind of do have this uh this inherent uniqueness that kind of makes them inaccessible to uh you know scientific uh testing um so there's there's no repeatability in them and thus they kind of have to wait forever at the port um i think he calls it he explains that it's like uh just like dead letters uh, he's he's going to wait until they're you know the the letters are not in the right language, and so the postmaster is just going to put them in the dead letter office and say, until they're addressed in the king's English into the proper address, I can't deliver them. Right? So, you know, right. they're going to stay there forever. They're never going to move anywhere. Right? But you know, he's got an excuse for why they can't be delivered. Um, yeah, this goes to the issue of um, of of what he sees as a, 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 a an intellectual prejudice uh, against his view. His idea is, well, look, you you have this these these standards of evidence, um, and they're perfectly good standards of evidence. We all apply these standards of evidence uh, in science and in daily life, except that I'm trying to make a, a claim here um, about a certain kind of phenomenon, which, in the nature of the case, by the uh, by its very nature, is not amenable to that kind of uh, hypothesis testing and, and evidence gathering. It's just it's in the nature of of this case that you're not going to find the kind of evidence that you are insisting is the only thing that counts as evidence, and so for you to simply keep throwing in my face that I I can't prove a miracle um, is of course um, simply insisting on your standard of evidence. So what he's trying to do here is is not say that um, you're unwilling to grant that there are miracles. He's saying you're unable not unwilling, you're unable by, by virtue of what you believe evidence to be to see a miracle if it happened right in front of you. You know, you're, these, these letters are undeliverable. It's like someone who's, you know, uh, an immigrant sort of stuck in port and can't, can't go anywhere, uh, you know, there, because there's this procedure that you've put uh, in, in, in front of them that won't let them, you know, won't let them in. You, you're not letting into your country something that that is real. Uh, you're simply not acknowledging it. Um, and this is actually not a terrible argument. Um, it, it seems, I mean, we, we want, we, we're all desperate to say, oh, this is a terrible argument. I mean, you're j- this is just special pleading. Well, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's special pleading if it's BS. But what if, the, think seriously now, what if, if there were miracles uh, and they were not replicable, they were not repeatable, we would not be able to identify them. Okay, so well, then you might say, okay, well, well, then we couldn't identify them. Then we have no reason to believe them. Yes, okay, but that doesn't mean that they don't happen and they're not real. Hmm. Um, and so what he's suggesting is, look, the reason you're 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 
you, you just got to make sure that you're honest about why you, you, you say there are no miracles. And it, it can't just be that I'm, I'm sticking to this particular standard of evidence. If, if that's the only reason, you've got to ask yourself, why, what's, that standard of, what's supporting that standard of evidence? You know, why are you heeding to that standard of evidence? I mean, it could be just that it's convenient and gets you out of having to believe certain things that would uh, be very consequential for how you live your life. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good point. Um, but I I'd like to say though I I think there's maybe one criteria where methodological naturalism could lead you to concluding a, a miracle did occur, and that is if you had a complete understanding of the laws of physics, and and every every observation up until that point conformed perfectly with these these observations, and every observation past this point does, and there's no way you can tweak them subtly to allow for this particular event. There is no, if there's no logically self-consistent set of laws that allow every event that you've seen previously to fit into the same universe with that miracle, then you could prove that it was a miracle. You could prove that it occurred outside of the laws of, of, of nature because it couldn't occur within, within any self-consistent laws of nature. You could either prove that it's a miracle or that the laws of nature are not self-consistent. Well, the, one, one alternative, though, is, of course, that maybe the laws of nature are not self-consistent. I agree, yeah, that's what I'm yeah, saying. That's, that's a possibility, you know, I mean, it's, as, as sort of... You know, puzzling as that is, that that even that is a poss is a bare possibility, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. It wouldn't you know. it wouldn't prove that it was it was a it wouldn't prove that it was the the work of a particular god or anything, but it would prove that it was not natural. It was supernatural. It was That's outside right. the laws of nature. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that is that is absolutely the the other possibility that you could you could come to the conclusion of. Um, yeah, I don't think there would be any way to prove that it was from a god unless god was part of, of the universe and therefore subject to the laws of nature. Which There's something I'd like to say to this uh, question uh, about, you know, how would you know that, you know, something was authored by god, some miracle was authored by god. This is something that, that I have always struggled with. It's, it's something I struggled with when I was a, a Christian myself, uh, and that is you know, it would be so easy for God to author his miracles, to make it plain. You know, first of all, he could make himself known to everybody objectively. There would be no need for the self-authenticating experience. God could, you know, literally imbue everyone with an experience. You know, I mean, everyone right now in the world could have an experience where they hear, you know, I am the God of Abraham, I am that I am. You know, he could just trot out whatever he wanted, and we could all hear this voice simultaneously, and we would all turn to one another and go, oh my God, what the heck was that? People who were asleep would wake up and say, I just had the most vivid, amazing dream. It was a dream unlike any I've ever had, and it said this. You know, and then we would all, we would all take notice. We would all, I mean, people would convert in the in the in the billions, if you know, at least. Um, this would be absolutely irrefutable. I mean, it, you know. It would be in every newspaper. It, people could talk about nothing else if this kind of experience were to happen. That would be one sort of trivial way that that God could sort of make His own existence known. Um, but as for a specific miracle, there's all all kinds of ways that a a, a being could could uh, author a, a, an action so that it was unmistakably the the work of that being. Um, so. This is why it sounds to, to to our mind like special pleading when they when they say, well, you know, you've got the standard of evidence uh, that's sort of, you know, blocking everything. One has to wonder, well, yeah, but okay, given that that's the case, why can't God just sort of get rid of this obstacle? I mean, 
he could do so effortlessly. He's omnipotent. Presumably, this is not beyond his power. Um, and so the, the story that they give, um, that it's just a prejudice on our parts, is exactly what you would expect if there was no such being and they were just mistaking um, events that are non-miraculous for the miraculous um, or just believing things that never happened to, to have happened and to have happened by miraculous means. To, to come to the theist's defense, um, because there isn't a theist here to defend their belief, uh, uh, to come to their defense, I'd like to say that the, the standard theological argument that if God were to interfere directly, he would, he would violate our free will and therefore our ability to choose whether or not to be good or evil. Uh, you know that's a terrible argument, and I bet you know why. Well, I mean... I have some reasons. I don't believe in free will. I don't think it's a coherent concept. Um, let's, but say, let's say, for the sake of argument, there was. <laughs> for, the, for the sake of argument, let's assume there's a coherent concept of free will. Um, well, it, there, there are a couple of, uh, of, of holes in it that I can see. One is that, that by, by creating the church at all, he's interfering with our free will, arguably. Uh, but, but their point would be that, that it is not about not interfering at all, but interfering in an incontrovertible way that we would have no choice but to accept God. But then they then turn around and argue that they've had an experience which is incontrovertibly the, the work of God to, to justify their own belief. And so it, it is... <laughs> uh, clearly God does not care if a person has a free will. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, there's there's another argument. Uh, okay, so the, 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 that that last point you made, I think, is is spot on. If 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 God does more with your free will, then He would never give anyone a self-authenticating, self-attesting experience that they could not deny, because that you know it beyond your human ability, according to that, to deny this. Um, and so you have a belief that that has effectively been put there, um, um, robbing you of free will in that instance. Um, well. You know, make up your mind. Is this allowed or not? Does God can God do this or not? Is uh, would He not do this? If, you know, or not? So, uh, this is really trying to have it both ways. And and another argument I think is that it is not a violation of one's free will if, if free will exists to have one's beliefs caused. You know, when I, I look at this, you know, glass of beer here, and I have this mental experience, a visual experience of a glass of beer here, and a tactile experience, and I form the belief that there's a glass of beer here. It, there's no way that my that I, I feel um, that my free will has been compromised, right? That having good reasons for believing something doesn't take away your free will. Period, right? Well, if free will exists, if the kind of radical free will that, that uh, they think exists does exist, then surely having good reasons isn't compromising your free will. It's just a, I think that's just a, a terrible argument. On top of that, um, your your argument is excellent that. This self-attesting uh, experience that is undeniably uh, an experience of God would would have to qualify as a violation of free will. So I think they're really trying to have it both ways with that argument. But but in response to what you said, uh, I think I may have forgotten what my response was. I think we're we're, we're all kind of having that kind of night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, this this is unfortunate. Uh, you made two claims. Uh, there was the, that last one, and the one before was. Um, well, I was responding to what you were saying. It was, ah, oh, this... Oh, okay, so it's a violation of our free will, not because he's making us believe in something, but because he's making us believe in something that we know, if we know that God exists, and we know he has all these traits, that 
we would never be compelled to do evil under any circumstances. And I think that that's a great reason for God, if he exists, to reveal himself to us. Why would God want us to do evil or to have the option of doing evil? I, I, I mean, I think that that is where it really fails, is when it comes to the why would God care if we do evil? And if he did, does care, why doesn't he just make us in, incapable of being evil? Um, that's, I think, where it really falls apart. But but I think they, they have a point there that, that if if we had all incontrovertible evidence that there was an all-powerful being that would torture us forever and ever and ever if we sinned, then it would be <laughs> it would kind of be hard to, to to justify sinning. Like, well, I could I could eat this food on the wrong day and be satisfied for a day and then be tortured forever, or I could just not <laughs> and go to heaven. I mean, I kind of I kind of see their point there, that, that that is what really takes the free will away. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work um, because, first of all, they believe that even when you have a regenerated spirit or you know, it's never fully regenerated, but when you have this experience of God, you know, they, they don't think for a moment that you cease to, 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 to be a sinner. You're not sin-free from that moment. Obviously, the you know, God can reveal himself to some people according to their theology, that according to Van Til's own theology, that God can reveal himself um, to you, um, and you can have this sort of, this, uh, this, this certitude because of this self-attesting, uh, self-authenticating uh, sort of inner testimony of the, of the Holy Spirit, and nevertheless, you still have free will, you can still sin. So, I mean, obviously, they, they believe in, in free will so drastically that obviously even having this experience does not make it impossible for you to uh, to uh, to be a sinner, so you still have free will. It doesn't compromise your free will. So it seems to me, you know, God could do that to everybody if He I, wanted to, right? Now they have a th another theological reason why it doesn't happen to everybody, um, but uh, I don't think it's a very good reason. <laughs> but that's another argument. Uh, I gotta say though, uh, in response to that, uh, I think that I think that that is a flaw of their argument to say that that once I mean either they have to argue that that Christians who have been who've had God revealed to them certainly with certainty, are irrational and make the, the utterly irrational decision to sin even though they know it will result in eternal torture, either they have to argue that Christians are irrational or or that this wouldn't rob you of your free will. And I would actually say that for a rational person, it, it in a sense would rob them of their... their they would, they would have no compulsion to, 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 to do evil because the punishment is clearly so great if they're truly certain of it. That or they have to argue that the Christians who have had this revealed to them aren't certain of it. Well, I, I think they would just say, look, if you had this evidence uh, that God existed and you understood the stakes, um, the likelihood that you would do wrong would be very, very small. You would be as likely to do wrong under the surveillance of this, of this, uh, this God um, as you would be to commit a crime right in front of a policeman. <laughs> you know, and yet people do that. <laughs> Omnipotent policemen, though. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. But I mean, people do commit crimes right in front of the police. You know, like you, you know, they do commit crimes on camera. Sure. But maskless, <laughs> they smile at the camera, knowing but, that, that this is very likely going to get them caught. It's just they think that it, they won't get caught. So, remember, all they have to do is God just has to rob them of the free will. Uh, you know, allegedly. Um, uh, by uh, imposing his existence on them so that they couldn't deny his existence. But that wouldn't mean that they have to believe every part of the uh, dogma uh, about uh, hell and the inevitability and all this. And even if they did, it doesn't follow from, from that that they would be sufficiently rational. I mean, we're, we don't practice sort of perfect deductive closure. Um, that is, we don't, we don't work out all of the deductive consequences 
Oh, we lost you again, Ozzy. There's an implications of it. You're, uh, you're fading Those, all, all consequences into of what we perfectly rational. Um, having this experience would not confer rationality. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you that, 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 that they would have to be they'd have to be very rational, but but um I think the difference between saying people will will commit a crime in front of a police officer or a camera is that even if they think there's a good chance of them getting caught, they the punishment is is gonna be likely relatively mild. I mean what what's seventeen years in prison versus an eternity in hell. I mean, those are very different stakes we're playing with. And if someone genuinely believes that those are the stakes, um, and that there's no way that they could possibly get away with any sort of sin, then I, I would bet that that person, if they were rational, mind you, I'm, I'm saying if they're rational, would do everything in their power to avoid sinning. And, and in that sense, it would rob, rob a rational person. Yes, absolutely. But it would yeah. not necessarily rob the irrational their ability to sin. Yeah, but this has a weird implication. Uh, the implication is, is paradoxically, that Christians who sin as much as an atheist are more irrational than an atheist, because an atheist doesn't have the added incentives <laughs> to not sin and do these 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 things. So, it, it, by definition, <laughs> if if a person has this conclusive evidence that God exists and understands what what the consequences are and their inevitability, uh, but they have this escape clause, you see, and the escape clause is. Uh, they're that 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 they're 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 saved, um, <laughs> um, uh, so it, it doesn't really matter how much sinning they do. Um, it it really doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't. It it literally does not matter how much sinning you have done, um, uh, and th they don't construe this as a license to sin, of course. But the the problem is, if you know, they can sin as much as they like, and they're still going to get out of it. So, you know. And it's very possible that that understanding makes a difference. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That does that does disrupt it. That does disrupt my claim that it would rob them of their free will. But again, it, then that disrupts their claim that it would rob everyone else of their free will. So. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This really is an argument trying to have it both ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. John, uh, you're probably eager to to move on to another point. Yeah, it was uh, definitely. But uh, no, I was that, that was a great clarification, guys. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be listening to this over and over again. I know it. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was curious. To, maybe this is kind of going along with your guys's point here. Um, maybe I'll just read out this quote and see if I get your guys's uh, get your guys's response to it. Um, you have taken for granted that you need no emplacement of any sort outside of yourself. You have assumed the autonomy of your own experience. Consequently, you are unable, and that is unwilling, to accept as fact, any fact that would challenge your self-sufficiency, you are bound to call that contradictory that which does not fit in within the reach of your intellectual powers. Yeah, I actually think this is a good point. Um, so do it, I. People, people will often dismiss things that they don't understand, and that is not legitimate. It, it, if, you, if you were to claim that something is inconsistent, you're claiming something is incoherent, you have to demonstrate that. I mean, this is why I want to go to, go to college and, and try to pursue a degree in philosophy so that I can demonstrate to my satisfaction that, that objective morality as a concept is incoherent. I mean, I hold that view, but I can't defend it. I want to be able to defend my views. Uh, and, and as such, I, I think I, I agree with him that, that, that essentially that, yes, people, people do do this. There's a, a theological point uh, that he's making here. It's just this idea of uh, the autonomy of human reason, and it, and it connects back to this uh, idea of regeneration that I was talking about earlier. Um, uh, 
one of the things that Calvinists and Reformed Christians believe, um, not 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 just them, not just that, those denominations, uh, but is the idea that uh, because of our um, of sin, um, our our very ability to reason and evaluate and and make uh, judgments and make the right judgments is compromised. Um, it, it's like we're wearing, you know, you know those glasses. There's some novelty glasses that have these weird prism lenses, and you can turn them, and the, the whole world goes cockeyed. So you're walking straight, but the whole world looks like it's twisted 45 degrees or something like that. It's like we're walking around with those, and you know, or it's like taking off the blindfolds again, right? Um, or, or, or and, and as you become a Christian and you grow in your faith. And the spirit works in you, and you, the, the, your 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 soul is or uh, your spirit is regenerated. What ends up happening uh, is you begin to think properly. You want you under you are able to see things as they are and reason properly uh, about things. And it's like those lenses start to turn until finally you're finally literally seeing straight. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, they think seeing straight means is. Um, uh, having all of your reason subordinate to the will of God and the authority of Scripture, uh, so they they will say, well, look, you know, part of the uh, the problem you have here is you believe in the autonomy of your own reason. You think that the highest authority is your own reasoning ability, but your own reasoning ability has been messed up. It it's it's just malfunctioning, and you don't know that it's malfunctioning. And because you're using using your reasoning, you can't can't even detect that using a malfunctioning device to typically the device is functioning. This is hopeless as they see it, and um, and it's only through this uh, process of spiritual regeneration of of your soul and your your mind and your emotions uh, that things get properly calibrated, and then you can see that what you needed to do all along was believe in God, believe in Christianity, trust in the authority of Scripture, and once you see that, that that's that's the case, then you'll see that evolution is obviously wrong because it contradicts Scripture. You know, things like that, right? Um, uh, I want to punctuate with that kind of point because that's one of the things, that that's one of the ways that they, they, they'll sort of argue against certain things. Or they'll just say, well, look, that's just not in the good book. And we'll say, well, well who cares if it, it's not in the good book? Use your head. You know, and, their, and their view is, well, no, your head is what's messed up. It's precisely the wrong instrument. You should never just use your head. Your head has to be finely tuned, and it's not finely tuned until you're right with God. Hmm. So to, to actually uh, make that analogy maybe a bit stronger, um, this is something that my physics teacher told me, and, and I trust her because she's not really one to spread BS, but, but from what she's told me, that if you wear those glasses that turn the world upside down long enough, you, you actually adjust to it, and your, your mind flips the image. So you actually see everything as if it were right side up, and so I, did the, I did the experiment when <laughs> I was uh, in uh, before I went to university. I went to um, I went to school in Quebec, so I, I was in in Sejep, and there was a psychology lab. I was a psychology student, an aspiring psychology student, and there was a psychology lab, and I actually got a job uh, working as a lab monitor. And they had these glasses, just drawers and drawers of these glasses, and they were just wire frames, and they had these little lenses, and then you could orient them. They had little degrees. Uh, marked on them, and you could and you could walk around for like a day, wearing glasses that were off by 60 degrees, and like you know you would literally at first you'd be walking tipped over like this, but within a you know a few hours you would your your brain did something and started compensating, and uh, and by the end of the day you were just about fine. Every once in a while you'd mess up, 
and uh, and there was a so your brain really did actually calib calibrate. Um, and another interesting uh, byproduct of that, of that was that when you would take them off, yeah, everything yeah. would go wonky. Exactly. Uh, but but you would revert to sort of normal perception very very quickly. And when you put the glasses on, it was like wonky. But the more often you did this exercise the faster your recovery and recalibration time got with these glasses. It was, it was really cool. Hmm. So yeah, that was, that was exactly what I was going to say, that, that essentially they're, they're going to think that you've, you've gotten so used to this skewed view that you now think it's right. And when you take this view off, you're immediately going to be like, whoa, this is all wrong. But, but in reality, you just haven't adjusted yet. That's right. That's, That's, yeah, that, is, that is how they would say it. That's an excellent analogy. Cool. Well, it's your analogy. Well, it's my analogy, but I mean, it, it, you, 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 you're the one that drove home the point about the implications of it, of, of, that it seems normal to you, even though you're wearing skewed glasses, you can't see, you know, that, that something's wrong. Yeah. yeah, what's the word for that? Is it uh, neural plasticity um, that we can we can reprogram uh, sections of our brain? Or? Well, there's no reprogramming going on there. Right, um, I just remember but, you. Yeah, neural plasticity refers to the fact that uh, that you sort of your 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 brain can uh, literally rewire itself. There's no rewiring going on here, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of virtual neural plasticity. Yeah, huh, cool. I like, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I always I always enjoy those uh, those kind of case studies and stuff. Reading about those, that's it's, that's really interesting. Um, well, maybe we'll go on a little bit to uh, maybe why uh, Van Til thinks that our vision is skewed here. Um, I think I think it's probably best put in um, in this paragraph here. Uh, now, if you are actually God's creature, then your present attitude to Him is very unfair. In that case, it is even an insult to Him. You have insulted God, and His displeasure rests upon you. You and God are not on speaking terms. You have very good reason for trying to prove that He doesn't exist. If He does exist, He will punish you for your disregard of Him. You are wear therefore wearing colored glasses, and this determines everything you say about the facts and reasons you have for not believing in him. You have your picnics and hunting parties there, there, uh, there being, I guess, his land, uh, without asking his permission. You have taken the grapes of God's vineyard without paying him rent and have insulted his representatives who have asked you for it. Um, so that you know, I think that's very that's very telling. Um, that he he kind of thinks that you know it's it's almost an internal, uh, like like we're unconsciously uh, suppressing the the knowledge of God right and I think that is that is very much the the claim there right um, that we're worried about the punishment and therefore we're not even we're not even acknowledging the fact that we know um, that that's how worried we are about the punishment yeah I, I guess I think the problem with that analogy is that uh, we we don't we don't escape our fear of 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 getting caught by the police when we're 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 doing a crime by not believing in in the police. What we do is we believe that we can't be caught by the police. We believe that we are immune to their effects. Um, and as such, it would make more sense if someone believed in a sort of neutered god. Uh, they they were convinced if they if they believed in like Zeus and thought that they were good enough to to avoid Zeus or something like that. That would make more sense. But in the case of of, of uh, Yahweh, Jehovah. Um, I, I don't really think you can say that. Uh, if you genuinely believe in in the theology, then then you believe that He's omnipotent and 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 omniscient, and he will know and be able to punish anything you do. So I, I yeah I don't I kind of think the analogy breaks down a bit there, but but it is a good analogy, and and like I, all of his in this paper, I think it's well well done. 
Yeah, definitely. I, uh, uh, I had the same kind of initial reaction to it where I thought that um, it wouldn't really work on someone who was a deist or any sort of other type of theist. Uh, it, was, it was very specific to, uh, to argue against an, an atheistic point of view. Um, well, I, no, I, I, couldn't he run the same argument against a deist or somebody else? Um, uh, he, he would just say, look, you know, you're, you're acknowledging that there's a god and all that, uh, but you're sort of ignoring um, the, the relevant attributes of this god. Uh, but I mean, what he's getting at there is when, when he talks about you're sort of, you're, 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 you're hunting on his property, basically. Uh, I can't remember how he puts it exactly. Uh, um, stealing grapes uh, he uses, or, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the pic picnics and hunting parties. Yeah, what, what he's saying there is, look, you're at odds with yourself. Um, you don't realize whose property you're on uh, when you're doing this. You don't realize that when you're aiming guns at, at, at God and, and marshalling arguments against the existence of God, that you're presupposing God. Now, this goes back to the, the very first thing that Gibran said. Which is this is the part of the argument that's left out that he hasn't made that case, um, and it would be useful if he had. He, I mean, he does make that case in other works. Uh, other presuppositionalists do that. It's 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 unfortunate that it's not here, but his purpose in this paper is not to make that case. It's it's sort of to 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 sort of I think scotch certain um, objections and and get uh, a non-believer to understand how this particular believer sees things. You know, he wants the person to understand. He wants the non-believer to understand. Look, this is how it looks to me. You look to me like someone who's who's um, uh, uh, using um, a, a a mounted piece of uh, of firepower here, a machine gun or something like that that's mounted um, to shoot at the thing, the what he calls the emplacement, the thing that it's placed on. Um, uh, not realizing how, how contradictory and uh, it sort of rationally incontinent this is. Uh, th that's what he's, he's getting at there. That you're, you're, that everything you're doing, all of this objecting, all of this argumentation that you're throwing up in my face is from my standpoint um, further evidence that you believe in a god, that, that, this, that this is all presupposed by a god and that you're hiding something, you're denying something to yourself. Um, and you're just denying it out loud to me, but really there's something wrong going on uh, in you. That th This is all really just an act of rebellion. You're being petulant, is what he's saying. Mm -hmm. I, I'd just like to recognize the, the amazing phrase you used there, rationally incontinent. I, I, I've never heard that before, and, and I, I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I, I actually think his argument is much stronger against a deist because um, he's saying you, you, you recognize the existence of God, but you deny the fact that he can, he can punish you for things. And, yeah. and so I think his argument actually works much better against a deist than it would against an, an atheist. Uh, or, yeah. Or yeah, I stand corrected on that, actually. That's, that's, that's a good point. Um, in fact, I, I think that the, the, this part... Uh, and in fact, in the entire paper, really, we say that it should be read by presuppositionalists, and I agree with you, but I think it should actually be read by atheists because it's a great way of, like, of getting to know the presuppositionalist argument. Um, like, I don't think we would have gotten into this, uh, the discussion we got into with Redline, uh, although that discussion was very interesting in, in, its, in its own right, but, but we wouldn't have gotten into that discussion if, if, if more people had read this uh, because it, it does introduce the basic idea in a way that's not... Um, like size style of of uh, of argumentation, I think it's a really good way of introducing the idea.
uh, and it's it's elegantly done and it's polite and interesting. It, very much so. Uh, it's you know it, it there's a there's a lot of of uh, kind of flattery in this one, um, almost like blackmail flattery. You know, like well, you know, like you know, I know you're basically interested in this, and as an intelligent person, you know, you're gonna want to listen to this next part and stuff like you know. It's he he does a, he does throws a lot of that in there, you know, and uh, it's very it's very much so a a very I, I don't know a constructive way of of approaching a dialogue if if you were. Uh, I mean, if you were in fact doing a monologue to somebody like this, uh, I think there's there's a lot of things you could you could you could take from this as uh, as ways to get people to, you know to listen to you and to uh, to allow you to speak and stuff like that. There's it, it also mirrors uh, the Socratic dialogue in that sense, where Socrates or Plato through Socrates always refers to his opponents as you best of man or you who is more knowledgeable. Right, than I, right before he rips them to pieces. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, so I I think that this is this is. Uh, reading this is a lot like reading um, a sort of more modern... It really, it is like reading a Socratic dialogue. Uh, some of the language he uses is similar, and the basic style is... Uh, and I like that. I, I, I love reading Plato. I think he's a lot of fun to read. Um, and I, I really enjoy that style. And so that, that does... Yeah, it's a little bit oddly executed with the, the second-person pronoun there of, of you, but... Yeah. I like the basic style a lot. Yeah, but I mean, for an atheist um, who has probably raised these sorts of objections, it's kind of nice to sort of read someone raising them for you and then, you know, sort of saying, uh, this is how I see it. And there's one thing I should say um, to, to underscore what you said uh, about it would be a good thing for atheists to read this. I mean, not just this. There's all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, by presuppositionalists out there that you can read. There, there's a difficulty with reading this stuff, though, and, th and that is, from the standpoint of an atheist, it sounds so damn smug and sanctimonious. Um, and, but, of course, it's going to sound that way. That's how we sound to everybody on the other side of the fence. So, you know, you just sort of have to be, you know, thick-skinned. And if, there, if your blood pressure starts to go up when you're reading this stuff, you really need to sort of get yourself under control. That, that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't let that happen to you. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's sort of a natural response when you read an argument that, that strikes you as, you know, bonkers. Uh, but there's another thing that is important about this particular piece, and that is that it's he he isn't really he's he's describing how he sees things. He's not arguing for them. This is not a sort of a, a set of arguments that are going to show you that God exists. It's not at all what's going on. It's yeah. listen. This is how I see things. This is how I see your questions. This is how I read your objections. Right. And then you will then you, then you will understand why I find them unpersuasive. Then you will understand why I respond the way I do to your arguments. Okay, that's what he's trying to do. It's it's like he's trying to get you to understand how he understands your objections and your words. And and he's not bothering to present all of the arguments in in this little article. All he's trying to do is is say, look, I think it's like this. You know, that's what he's doing, and and then 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 you go, oh, I see, you see it that way. Okay, well, no longer seems you, you don't seem so insane to me now. I can see you're not crazy. Okay, I still don't agree with you. Well, that's okay. You don't have to agree with them, you know, but you can at least understand. You can see the sense in how they respond uh, to what you say. Because so much of the difficulty with uh, presuppositionalism is that, you know, atheists just think. Uh, this argument seems crazy, and when I say something, what they come back with sounds even crazier. Um, but there's there is a sense to be uh, to be had here, and it, it sort of as a 
as a, a matter of intellectual charity, it's important to try to understand what the other person is saying from as they see it. You've got to try to see it by their lights, for, at least for the purposes of argument. And if you're going to try to argue again, at least get their argument right. So this yeah. is sort of a good intro. Absolutely. Um, I think, oh, never mind, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> go, go on, someone else. No, I, I, you know, I really love this. I really love this, this whole, this whole uh, pamphlet. It's, it's, uh, it really systematically lays out a lot of the objections that, um, that a theist is going to bring up in the, in the argument. Um, and you know, it, it really made me think about some things that I had never really thought about before in the, in the presup. Um, so there, there was a bit, uh, you know, a bit of the background to presuppositional apologetics that I really had, uh, you know, I had no idea about, and you know, it really brought me up to speed. Uh, in a in a fast way, um, he, he's very effective in that in that sense. I, I remember what I was going to say. Um, this is going back a bit. It to some extent he kind of sets up you, the character of you, the atheist, as as being kind of this sort of elitist person. He describes them as as being uh, under the the shadow of the White House and growing up with silver shoes yeah. and all these things. And I, you I, read in the Library of Congress and all yeah. that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think this is this this reflects to some extent how how some atheists come across, and and I think this is one of the really valuable things that he says here that I, I unequivocally agree with, uh, along with the the, the fact that, that being an atheist doesn't make us less biased, um, or it doesn't make us unbiased. I mean, re regardless, it, it has nothing to do with our biases. Uh, it is it is our conclusion. Uh, so. Uh, along with that, I, I think one of the interesting things that this, this this character kind of reveals about how he sees us, is, or how he saw the atheist back then, is being uh, being kind of smug and elitist in their own way. Whereas we see we see uh, religious people as being uh, with this holier than thou attitude, and and uh, it, it's quite obnoxious. But but we're smug in a different way. We're smug about our rationality, and and they're smug about their their holiness, and that's easier to escape. I don't buy into their vision of holiness. I don't buy into their beliefs about sin. And so the fact that I'm a sinner to them doesn't matter to me. But almost everyone accepts that being rational is important. And so to be smug about rationality is to offend in a deeper way, I think, um, the sensibilities of who we're talking to. And I think that that is a mistake that atheists make. Uh, not all the time, not all of us, but, but we often do, and I'm sure I have in the past plenty of times. I definitely did when I was younger. Um, but I think it's really, really important not to. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's it's kind of inevitable to some extent. Like when we're saying we're right and you're wrong, I mean, you're kind of going to get a bit of that. But it's it's important to avoid that. To avoid this, like, or it's it's not necessarily important to avoid it, but it, it makes it harder for a theist to talk to you. In the same way that if a theist is saying we're all going to go to hell, it makes it hard for us to want to talk to them. Um, it makes it hard for them to want to talk to us if we're we're dismissing them as being less rational just because they have a different viewpoint than us. Uh, anyway, that's that's kind of what I want to say. Yeah, I, I have one more little thing to say about that. Um, well, first of all, I agree with everything you said. That I thought that was really very well put. That, that it is, I think it, it, it registers as more deeply offensive to be told that you're systematically irrational um, than to be told you're, you're being naughty. You know, <laughs> you know that because to us that's how it sounds. Oh, sin! Well, I don't even believe in sin, so I'm not too worried about it. But you know, tell someone they're being systematically irrational, that they're just being willfully stupid. You know, boy, that 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 cuts pretty deep. I mean, that 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 is a conversation stopper. 
um, and, and you know we don't like it when they pull conversation stopping moves and we shouldn't be uh, doing it to them so I, I, I really really like uh, what you said there thank you yeah, um, and I, actually, I, I realize that there is a way that, that, that they do this to us that's an, analog, uh, analogous to some extent, and that is when they say you're you're denying God that you know, the, the God that you know. This is this is closer than the than the you're a sinner kind of thing. It's rather than rather than saying you're systematically irrational, it's saying you're systematically dishonest with yourself and others, and that is also quite deeply offensive. But yeah, can I, that's a really good point. But I want to sort of. Uh, if I can give a, a bit of advice to my fellow atheists, we have to be careful here. That that's not just an ad hom. Of course, it's going to be tossed out that way. Ah, oh, you're just in love with your sin. You know, that's the, you know, and and to hell with you. You know, and they'll sometimes literally tell you to go to hell. You know, um, you know, but they don't all do that, of course. But but I mean, sometimes that happens, right? But you have to understand that when they're saying that, that is part of their doctrine. That's not just an ad hom. That's not just a way of dismissing you. That is, in fact, their belief. And that's one of the things you have to challenge. And you can't just say, oh, I'm going to write that off. You know, you're just saying that to be insulting, right? It, you know, if I say, you know, look, your God strikes me as a moral monster, okay? If I say that merely to offend, then I'm being a dick, okay? But if I say that, you know, yeah, and there are ways of, you know, polite ways of saying that. I mean, well, one way of saying it politely is, look, I have to say, the God that you describe strikes me as a moral monster. But if you say your God's a moral monster, well, that's not quite so nice. But I mean, there's a there's a way of saying it. But it, no matter how you say it, what you're doing is you are offending what they think is most sacred. And of course, they're going to be upset about that. And it's you know understandable when they 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 get upset. But really, they shouldn't get so upset about it. It's what you think. And if we're going to have honest dialogue, you have to be able to say what you honestly believe. But so do they. And so when they come at you and they say, you're just in love with your sin and you're denying um, the God you know exists, that's what they believe. That's, their, that's, that's part of their claim. That's not just an insult. And you shouldn't just let your blood boil when that happens. And uh, as often, just, just take that in stride, take that on board and say, okay, well, okay, here's why I think that's not right. And, uh, and go on. Uh, Anyway, enough of that, about that, I guess. No, no, that's that's very good. Uh, and to expand upon that, I would say to some extent, um, for the atheist claim that, that religious people are systematically irrational, in some cases that is what they believe, and it's not just the attitude that they hold. I think that that's a dangerous belief. Uh, I think that's an incorrect belief. Um, uh, and and I think that it is one that makes it, 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 it limits our ability to talk to the religious. Uh, and so I, I would I would discourage us from holding that belief. But uh, I yeah I mean some people do believe that, and some people do just believe that, that the religious are systematically irrational. And maybe some of them are, but it's not useful to, to claim that they all are. I, I have met people who who genuinely reject rationality as a concept. Mind you, they were hippies, not 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 Christians. <laughs> so uh, different different class there. But but. Uh, but yeah, there I have that people who are genuinely systematically rational. They, they reject the very concept of rationality. Um, but I don't think it's a claim to be made lightly. And I think that some atheists make it lightly or automatically, and that that's unwise. Anyway. Hmm. Interesting. How hey, are we doing uh, for time, John? Uh, pretty good. We're just past an hour and a half here. Um, it, it you know, I, I was. Uh, we do have quite a bit to go through here, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's a there's a little bit more to go through here, but I think we've covered quite a bit of it. Um, okay. Maybe I'll just uh, maybe I'll just give you guys one more quote here, and we can we can kind of talk about this. Um, uh, 
right about the right towards the end of it he kind of says uh that he's got one more point and he kind of says like let's stop for dinner um you know and then i'm gonna go down here and uh drill a little deeper um so right afterwards he says uh i must make apologies uh the fact that so many people are placed before the full exposition of the evidence of god's existence and yet do not believe in him has greatly discouraged us we've therefore adopted measures of despair anxious to win your goodwill we have again compromised our god Noting that men do not see, we have conceded that what they ought to see is hard to see. In our great concern to win men, we have allowed that the evidence for God's existence is only probably compelling. And from that fatal confession, we have gone one step further down to the point where we have admitted, or virtually admitted, that it is not really compelling at all. And so we fall back upon testimony instead of argument. After all, we say, God is not found at the end of the argument. He's found it in our hearts. And so simply... So we simply testify to men that we were once dead and now alive, once blind and that now we see, and give up all intellectual arguments. Um, so in here he's kind of giving a critique of uh, of other of uh, other theologies, right? Um, he's uh, I believe that he's critiquing Armenianism uh, in in uh, in specifics, right? So I think he's just uh, um, critiquing. Uh a certain style of apologetics, actually, a more traditional style of apologetics, a more evidentialist style of apologetics there. Um, yeah, maybe one that um, accepts that the evidence is hard to see, you know, that, that you have to be compelled. Um, and it seems like he's he wants to kind of deny that. He wants to say, no, no, the evidence is easy to see, it's just that you can't see it. I would. It seems more that he's, he's kind of denouncing not evidentialist apologetics, but experientialist apologetics. Yeah, the autonomy of human reason as, as the court of, of appeal here. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't yeah, I, yeah, I'm surprised you didn't make that, that analogy right away. I know uh, Saib makes that, makes that analogy quite a bit, and so I was, you know, I was, I was surprised not to see it. Uh, what, that, what, what analogy is... Um, that, uh, putting us in, in the place of judge uh, over God. I'm not sure if it's, if it's in uh, here. He, well, he, do, he does, he, not here maybe, but he does elsewhere. I think, yeah, in the defense of Christianity maybe, yeah, or maybe I'm yeah. thinking of Bonson, but uh, one of those well, Bonson ones... Bonson for sure does that. Yeah, um, I, I've, I've read it, I've read it Van Bonson Till, but, sure. I think I've, but I've read it elsewhere in Van Til, I think... Yeah, and I was I was curious about that. I mean, it, it seems like a really obvious analogy, and I'm, I was I was surprised I didn't see it in this one. Um, yeah, uh, see, I mean, what what he's sort of getting at there is, look, in an effort to reach people, um, and 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 explain their theology and, and and provide an apologetic, he's saying we Christians have gone too far. That is, we have conceded too much. We have said, okay. Let's assume there's no God. Let's, you know, let, and let me try to build up evidence and stuff like that. In other words, think of it as uh, as sort of an attack on someone like William Lane Craig in a way. William Lane Craig is a uh, is a Christian apologist, um, and uh, but he he uses ev evidentialism um, primarily, and he'll, for instance, argue for the. Uh, the, uh, the existence of the empty tomb and certain facts as he sees them described in the Gospels as, as pointing uh, very strongly, uh, if not conclusively, uh, to uh, a resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Um, and what he's doing there is he's saying, well, look, let's look at what historians say. And he'll say, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll use essentially a kind of minimal facts approach. We'll, we'll forego... Uh, the theology. Let's just, you know, consider these facts. You know, Jesus was tried under Pontius Pilate. He was honorably buried. Um, the tomb was found empty. 
and then some days later his early uh, Christian followers uh, believed that uh, he was resurrected and reported having appearances of the risen Jesus, you know, something like that. And like different, like Gary Habermas has something like eight or twelve, I can't remember. Michael Lycona cites a different number. A lot of them use this minimal facts approach uh, where they cite a lot of facts that really are not, don't, don't presuppose the supernatural. They're just sort of mundane facts. And there's a lot of things like that, you know, the cosmological arguments and stuff like that point to sort of facts about the universe. The teleological universe uh, argument points to facts about uh, organisms and the organization of the, of the world and stuff like that. And the idea is we're going to start from just facts that we can all agree to that don't presuppose a god or anything like that, and we're going to build to a conclusion that a god exists. Um, and I think what he's getting at there is, look, this is putting you in the position of, of the judge um, who has to decide by his own lights, by, by using the autonomy uh, of, of, of your own reason um, or assuming the autonomy of your own reason, um, uh, whether or not there's a God. And he thinks this is, this is all wrong. And uh, this is a strain that you'll, you, this is something that's echoed a lot by, uh, by presuppositionalists. Um, uh, um, his protege um, was uh, Greg Bonson, a philosopher uh, and a presuppositional apologist, and he wrote an article, I just looked it up, um, called, um, and this is another one I would recommend that uh, people read, uh, whether they're uh, presuppositionalists or whether they're um, atheists interested in this argument. It's called, The Impropriety of Evidentially Arguing for the Resurrection, by Dr. Greg Bonson. Hmm. Um, so the, the impropriety of evidentially arguing for the resurrection. Um, it's an excellent article. Um, it, it's not long, uh, but it's sort of you, you'll sort of get the sense uh, of, of what he's talking about there. Now, that article is sort of full of sort of Christian talk and citing verses and stuff like that. But the whole idea there is that that it is literally impiety. It's improper to proceed evidentially. You're conceding too much. You are not assuming the things that you assume, and you can't get to where you want to go this way. And I think Cornelius Van Til, in that passage that you were quoting, is saying, listen, we have often, as apologists, fail as apologists. We have been too nice. We have, we have conceded too much. We have done a disservice to our God. Our God is not happy when we do this. And in a way, this is a way of saying, we should have been using presuppositionalism all this time. Um, and things might have gone better for us if we had been doing it right all along, as he sees it. So I, I, I think that might be what he's getting at there. I, hmm. I agree with you. I, I think that probably is what he's getting at. But I'm going to offer an alternative reading. Um, no way. What? <laughs> no, I, I agree with Please you. Do. I think you're, you're absolutely right that that is what he meant. But I, 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 it can be interpreted in this way as well, and I agree with this. What he's saying is that... Um, the, the Christian that, that kind of, or not necessarily what he's saying, but what it can, could appear to be saying is, is the Christian that backs away from, uh, admits that there is not sufficient evidence for it, is like the, the, the Darwinian uh, biologist who says, well, you know, maybe there isn't that much evidence for evolution. Like, you've you got to have the personal experience of evolution. Um, and what he's saying is that there's so much evidence that, that doing this, or not necessarily what he's saying, but what it could be interpreted as being said, is that, that there's so much evidence that, that conceding that one could be rationally not uh, a theist is, is absurd. Uh, and, and to concede that point, and then to argue on the basis of personal experience, 
is is just not going to work. And I, I agree with him completely that if if someone is arguing based on the basis of personal experience, I'm not going to I, I don't I, I'm not going to take that as being true. Like I, I just can't assume that your personal experience is true and you interpreted it correctly. Um, if you're going to convince me, it'll be through evidence. And if you're going to convince me with evidence, it better be damn convincing. So I, I, yeah, I agree with that interpretation, but I think what Ozzy said is probably closer to what he meant. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I agree with both of you. There, are, there's, there's ways to you could read it. Um, when I read through it, I kind of put a star beside. Um, we have allowed that the evidence for God's existence is only probably compelling. And, you know, from there, the next sentence he says is, and from that fatal confession, we have gone a step further to the point where we admitted, or virtually admitted, that it is not really compelling at all. Um, and I, I don't know, I kind of took exception to that, as if he was, was suggesting that the evidence should be 100% certain before we can consider it compelling. Um, that's that's how it seemed to me, anyways. Because he's saying it's you know, if we admit it's only probably compelling, which means most likely compelling, then somehow that would that would make it less or just admitting the possibility that it's not compelling is is somehow destroying your argument, right? Or or makes your argument worthless. Um, and in some ways, I kind of understand his point there. Uh, there is there is that idea that once you open up the possibility of you being wrong, um, it's possible that you could be wrong, right? I mean, if it was impossible that you could be wrong, it would be a much stronger position for you to argue from. And uh, I think I think maybe that's what he was saying there, um, that, you know, they're disappointed that people aren't getting it from the full exposition of the evidence, right? Um, that no matter how much evidence they seem to throw at people, they, they're still not getting the results that they desire. And uh, and so they they... they he's kind of suggesting that it's because we're giving them probable evidence. We're giving them evidence that's based on probability and not on the certainty that, uh, that he seems to think he has with his pre-sub argument. Can I, can I suggest the analogy of the, the Darwinian biologist again? Because I think it's appropriate in this sense. Um, I, I don't think that any biologist re arguing with a creationist should say, well, you know, maybe it's not true. I mean, while that is a, 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 a hypothetical... The, the, the evidence is so compelling that admitting it is, 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 is counterproductive. Uh, it, it is not an accurate representation of the facts. It's not an accurate representation of our beliefs about the facts. And in this case, in, in his, his, his mind, the facts are so compelling that, that it would be, it would be uh, a dishonest and absurd to admit that anyone wouldn't be, be convinced of them if they, they, they had access to them. But, but I... I agree in part with your analysis, uh, or I, I agree quite a bit with your analysis in some ways, uh, or at least like, it, it is quite possible that, that what he's saying is that, that yeah, yeah, oh, sorry, I, I, I lost my train of thought. I may have said something irrelevant. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right on topic there. Um, and I mean, yeah, he says that, that we, you know, we rely on testimony instead. Um, and then a little while later, he says um, something like, uh, this one, this one kind of confused me. Uh, it says, um, Testament is the argument, and the argument is the testament, or something Yeah, like that. a testimony that is not an argument is not a testimony either. Just as an argument that is not a testimony is not even an argument. Yeah, um, that one kind of threw me for a second, and then I think it kind of clarified, or it kind of crystallized a little when I was uh, re-listening to me and Ozzy's discussion uh, about presuppositionalism, and uh, I thought it might have something to do with referring to internal versus external justification. Um, it, it, would, the, would the testimony be like internally justifying a claim, and then the, the argument being like you're externally justifying it? 
I'm I'm just trying to just grasp what he's what he's saying with this. Yeah, with I know. I have to confess, I, I read that emptily. I I read it and and like I I, I read this years ago, mm -hmm. and then uh, when I knew that the saying that was going to happen, I, I I skimmed it, and then just before we started, I I read it through. Uh, in full, and I read that, and I was scratching my head. Like, what the heck is he trying to get at here? I, I, I confess, I, I don't get it. I read that emptily. I'm cool. So as long sure as everybody else read it and didn't understand it, I, I don't feel, I don't feel so bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I don't think I understood it, but I do have a possible interpretation. What he might be saying is that an argument for God without a testimony of God's existence is not an argument for God at all, and then a testimony for God's existence without an argument for his existence. Uh, in this case, the presuppositionalist argument is not much of a testimony. That may be what he's getting at, but it's phrased really poorly if that's actually what he meant. But I, no, yeah. that didn't take it. Yeah. Sorry. It, I, no, I, I take that implies. Like, I don't know what, what to make of that. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it either. It's... Yeah, seems kind of nonsensical, frankly. Cool. Um, uh, could could I return to another another point uh, that we made yes, earlier? Please. Absolutely. Uh, when, when that last point talking about uh, before, oh darn, I'm just trying to get something up here. Um, where, where, where I was talking about the sort of the, the, this idea of the, um, the there's an impiety in evidentialism and stuff like that. Well, one of the uh, the, the and then you read a quote about um, how. Where Vantilla says something about, um, you know, we 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 sort of we effectively conceded too much. Uh, it, it's not going to be certainty. Oh, geez, what was that? Yeah, it's it's uh, that what, it's what, only probably it? compelling instead exactly? of it's only probably compelling, and and by by admitting that you say right. it's virtually not compelling. Right, right, okay. Um, that's important because um, this is one of the um, the ideas in presuppositionalism, is that. The argument that you give has to convey, ultimately, um, has to convey the full conviction. You don't want a set of apologetical arguments that lead a person to think, yeah, probably Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore it's likely that God exists, and therefore maybe um, I'm, I'm saved if I accept uh, Christ as my Savior. That's not good enough. What you have to have is the full conviction um, of, of, of the joy and the hope that is within us, uh, as, it, as it says in the good book. That's what you need. Is you, you need an apologetic that, that completely demolishes the doubts. Um, um, and that's what presuppositionalism is supposed to do. You know, that you're just supposed to blow away every other worldview. The, the, any, any, any worldview that includes... Um, not the, God. The, not God in it. That God doesn't exist. It has to be proved to be impossible. And by the impossibility of the contrary, God has to exist. And and there you go. You know, you get the full conviction. And so that's that's where I think that that was going. I'm sorry to drag us back, but that, that, that's that that concept of full conviction is really really important to presuppositionalists. Hmm. Yeah, but, I've noticed that. Uh, it it almost seems like you know it's it's not quite. Uh, uh, I think you called it a certainty fetish uh, at one point. You know, it's not quite that, but yeah. it's, it, you know, you have to be so convicted that, you know, you have to be so compelled that there's virtually no no room for, for error. Um, I want to welcome uh, Elijah Lees to the conversation. Absolutely. Good to see you, Elijah. Hello, everyone. Good to see you Hello. all again. Hello. Good to see you again. Um, yeah, it's, you were talking about the uh, 
issue of it has to uh, convey the certainty. Um, the uh, the famous Bonson-Stein debate. Um, he famously starts that debate with saying, "You know, I want to make I want to distinguish very clearly between proof and persuasion." And yeah, I've heard other presuppositionalists talk about that or use that phrase since, and I, I think that's kind of where they're coming from when they say that is like they want to make sure that even if their opponent at the end of the debate says, hey, you know, I don't buy it, that that they have set this up at the beginning to say, look, you know, nevertheless, this is a conclu conclusive uh, apologetic. Hmm. Yeah, very, uh, yeah, it's, it gives them, at least uh, internally, gives them gives them great comfort, I bet, uh, to, you know, have that sense of, of complete certainty, um, you know, and, and have at least that standard to be aiming for is, uh, is you know, I think that's uh, admirable. Uh, I don't know if it's possible, but they could... Uh, well, you have to remember also they approach before they ever began thinking about their formulating an argument of any kind. They already believe they had that, right? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't come from the apologetic. The full conviction comes from sort of this, this, uh, you know, this, this inner wits of the Holy Spirit and uh, you know this action upon your, upon you, uh, upon your heart that happens. Uh, that that is what is so uh, firmly conclusive. Yes, uh, I and, think. And comes from it. It's it's not from this hyper hyper rational uh, stuff. It's a combination of the the experience. Go ahead, Elijah. Oh, I was gonna say if you uh, I saw a um a lecture Sai gave early on on uh, his apologetical method and it started out with him. Describing reasons people say they believe in Christianity, and um, you know, he asked kind of the crowd, you know, rhetorically, you know, do you believe in Christianity because you know you feel so good, you feel God's presence when you pray? And he said, well, that's not why I believe in Christianity. I believe in Christianity because Christianity is true. So that kind of thinking just, I mean, it sets you up to have that absolute confidence all the time. It's, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you don't even have to be a presuppositionalist to sort of think and talk that way as a Christian because, I mean, think of someone like William Lane Craig who who mostly promulgates uh, an evidentialist style of apologetics. I mean, if you read his book, Reasonable Faith, um, right in the intro or preface, I can't remember now, um, I mean, he says, you know, that, you know, if you ask him why does he believe, it's it, he didn't come to believe on the basis of any of these arguments. That, that's, that's, none of that is necessary. Uh, what is sufficient uh, and necessary is this, you know, what he calls it, you know, this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's what that's what does it. That's that's more than enough, and it doesn't matter. And he even says, even if all these arguments w were demolished, he would still believe. I mean, he's not believing uh, uh, by his own admission on the basis of these arguments. Uh, so it, it's a kind of dual truth uh, model, you know, that there's, there's, there's two ways of knowing this, that this is true, uh, and uh, either one of them is sufficient. Um, uh, as it turns out, one of them is absolutely necessary. Uh, and, and when you think about it, you know, in, in light of sort of Christian history and the idea that, the, you know, there were martyrs and stuff like that, you know, you know the idea of full conviction, of giving your life to Christ, uh, uh, sort of, uh, I mean, Christianity can be a very, very serious and, and uh, morally demanding religion uh, where you have to sort of take this unflinching critical look at yourself and turn your whole life around and purge yourself of, uh, of, uh, of bad habits and bad ways of thinking even. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> um, 
and if you're willing to sort of be beheaded or you know tortured or something like that uh, under certain regimes for it, well, you better have the full convictions because nothing else is going to do that, right? I mean, you're never going to get the to, to to that unless you've got this full conviction. So s something like that has to be uh, an ingredient in the in the equation as they see it. To comment on on the theme of of uh, or one of the, the threads of this paper that I think is very valuable. Uh, I would say that there are a number of atheists that take the same approach. They say, why are you an atheist? Because there is no God. Uh, I'm an atheist because it's true. Um, and and I again, I would say that it is equally weak when, when, when yeah. atheists, and it's important to, to not do that, but it, it's, I, I just, um, yeah, I, I'd like to, to bring it back and, and point out that uh, we do it as well sometimes, or our kind, to use an ill-defined term, uh, does it sometimes. Yeah, I call them presupposition. Oh, I can't even pronounce it now. I've had too much beer. Presupposition. Oh, oh dear. Presuppositionalist. Tag on atheist at the end. Um, oh, I can't say it. Either. Yeah, it's really hard to say. Actually, that's it. Gosh. Um, but, type it in the chat. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> presuppositional atheists. I mean, there are there presuppositional go. atheists out there. There are people. People who will actually ask, uh, "Why are you an atheist?" You know. You know, Bill will be. Uh, you know, because I, you know, I, I, I respect the truth, or I'm interested in the truth, or you know, well, you know, geez, we're all interested in the truth. You know, um, you know, that that can't be the way of putting it, right? And and to, to say it even more baldly, the you know, uh, you know, God is is really to beg the question. Is is talk about presuppositions? You know. Yeah, I gotta two, say though, two to, can play that game. The, to, to be fair to the presuppositionalists, that's not even their presupposition. As as we as we uh, were talking in in the fundamentally flawed post show, um, it's important. Right. To, in, in some ways, I would say the atheist presupposition is weaker because the presuppositionalists at least have a hypothetical argument for why it's impossible to not believe in God or impossible to have a coherent worldview and not believe in God. But the atheist doesn't even claim that for the most well, part. I mean, well, no, I mean most atheists who 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 will clumsily say, you know, I'm an atheist because there's no God, uh, you know, um, when press will will give you their reasons, they'll say, well, there's no evidence of a God, and so so they have the, the, uh, a hypothetical argument that they can trot out, right? The, but the problem is, stating it that way is obviously question begging, um, and and just makes the other person look at you like, well, oh, okay, re oh, I see, I see, there's no God, that's why you're an atheist. Oh, okay, now I see, you know, it, it, this is not persuasive, and it makes makes one look kind of silly. No, I, I I agree, and yeah, I, I yeah, just that's that's all I was commenting on is the, the remembering not to call presuppositionalists the, those who presuppose the existence of God for the sake of presupposing the existence of God. Uh, right, that's right, that right. That's just the yeah. the theist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, uh, no. I, I take I take your meaning though. I mean that that is that is an important point. I mean, a presuppositionalist could be a, in reference to to almost any uh, you know belief or background. Um, you could you could be you know an Islamic presuppositionalist, or I'm sure there's Buddhist presuppositionalists if you look hard enough. Um, but but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know uh, I don't know exactly exactly how you'd how you describe them or or what the tenets of that would be. Uh, you'd have to it'd have to be case by case. I think. Um, cool. Well, you know, we're just passing, we're just getting up to the two-hour mark here. Um, I was curious, um, let's see if I can just find, a. if I can just find this quote here. Um, I just had one more I was looking at. Let's see here. Um, uh, if anybody else has anything else to, 
to add to that, I'd I'd, uh, I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, Elijah, you you just showed up, um, and I know you got you uh, you're you're pretty well versed in presup. Um, did you have were you watching us from before here? Or? Um, no, I, I wasn't able to. I, I just happened to see the link when I logged in. I, I figured I would have missed it or that it wouldn't have started yet, honestly. Um, I haven't been following anything so far that we've been talking about. I mean, I know we're talking about the paper, right? But uh, Yeah, absolutely. Why I Believe in God by uh, Cornelius yeah. Van Til, which is uh, Yeah, I didn't expect to be here, so I didn't actually get to uh, freshen up on it. It's been years since I read it. And uh, the other materials by him and Bonson, it's been a while. But, uh, I mean, I what what uh. What are you looking at right now? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're just kind of wrapping it up, trying to draw some threads together here. Um, let me think here. Uh, the one one thing that I did see, um, and I thought this was like a really maybe I just uh, I just thought it was the presuppositional stance uh, when I first read it, but here maybe I'll just read it out and you guys just tell me. Um, uh, I I do I. Uh, nor do I pretend, of course, that once you have been brought face-to-face -face with this condition that you can change your attitude. No more than an Ethiopian can change his skin or a leopard his spots can you change your attitude. You have cemented your colored glasses firmly on your face that you cannot even take them off when you sleep. Freud had not even a glimpse of the sinfulness of sin as it controls the human heart. Only the great physician, through his blood atonement on the cross and by the gift of his Holy Spirit, can take those colored glasses off and make you see facts as they are, facts as evidence, as inherently compelling evidence for the existence of God. So I thought that was a great summary of it. Um, I don't know if that's, if you guys thought that too. That's a great summary of the underlying um, reform theology behind uh, presuppositionalism. Yeah. It really doesn't have that much to do with presuppositionalism at all. Mm. At all. It's really the Calvinism that has the, in my opinion, has to be the uh, theological position of anyone who does presuppositionalism and wants to do it accurately or consistently. But yeah, that's the, the whole idea that uh, human beings cannot choose to turn to God on their own. Only uh, the Holy Spirit has to come down and change our hearts for us. So not, the, uh, being, not being super familiar with Calvinism, uh, is, that, is that similar to the idea of total depravity? Um, it, yeah, it's, it's partly total depravity. That's, that's the condition where we can't... Uh, we can't we are completely as depraved as we can be. We can't uh, turn to God on our own. We won't. We couldn't if we wanted to, and we don't, right? We can't force ourselves to choose it. Um, but it's also the idea of irresistible grace, which is the I in uh, TULIP, which I don't know if you're familiar with TULIP. Mm -hmm. It's the acronym for the five points of Calvinism. But um, the I, irresistible grace, is when the Holy Spirit decides or when Christ decides that you're one of the, the people who are he predestined to be saved. He converts you beside yourself. He makes you believe, and you can't do anything about it. You become a Christian against your will. If, if I mean, not against your will, because you have no free will to begin with, but he opens your eyes to it and makes it where you just, you once you realize that it's true, you would never turn turn away from it, right? And they have well, all they, kinds they of don't, little they, loopholes. They, they don't all deny free will. I mean, a lot of a lot of Calvinists will, will you know, they, they, they believe in predestination and free will, but then they're you know, it gets complicated. Yeah, they, they do. They believe that we have a free will, just that we will not, our will will never choose God on its own because of the depravity. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's not, yeah. it's not, it's not like a determinism or anything of the nature. Right, right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this all goes to the, this doctrine of grace that, that you, you, you can't, you can't see right. The reason you can't see, see what I'm saying here is, well, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do about it, and there's nothing I can do about it. This is something that that the Holy Spirit has to do to you, um, and uh, and this is why, you know, um, well, I mean, this is sort of 
uh, in keeping with this this theme of him trying to explain this is how the world looks to us and this is why we answer you as we do and why our answers may seem so very queer to you um, it, it's because of what we believe and and what we believe is that you can't just change your mind about this it's not up to you um, and don't and and in a way though it's a it's a it's a kind of writing yourself a you know a, a, a hall pass or sort of a uh, you know, an excuse, you know, um, you know, this is why, if my argument is, is unpersuasive, well, don't blame me. <laughs> um, don't even blame you. <laughs> you it's know? your hardness of your heart, basically, is what it is, and you can't change it. It's also the reason why they're so comfortable um, saying that the job of the apologist, the presuppositionalist does not believe it's their job to convince us, right, that their right. argument is valid. It's just to make us shut our mouths, basically. It's to silence those who would criticize God and to show us the folly of our worldview, but not necessarily for the sake of converting us by any means, because they don't believe they can. They don't believe any argument can convert someone. Yeah, but but they, they, have, they are commanded, essentially, by Scripture uh, in the New Testament to, to always have an answer. Uh, yeah. And this is in part because at any point, God can use anyone and anybody's words as sort of the vehicle, the occasion um, for the Holy Spirit, you know, interceding. Yeah, they they would they would say even though they believe that using evidentialist, apologi uh, evidentialist apologetics is um, sinful, you know, they will readily admit that hey, if somebody comes to faith by it, you know, God can use anything. God can use a you know serial killer if he wanted to, I suppose. I mean, you know, yeah. anything can be a tool to bring people to faith, and whatever works, you know, praise God. I, I'm, is it? I I wasn't. Uh, are, are all of the presuppositionalists Calvinists or or? No, but overwhelmingly so. Okay. Yeah. It it definitely helps uh, to have to have that uh, yeah. that theology backing you up. I'd say. I, I say nowadays with it, we have a more mass-produced version of the argument, right? With Psy, and it's 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 so stripped down and bare bones that I don't think any particular theology needs to be assumed ahead of time. I. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to know anything about Christianity to use this argument properly. I think, right. you and me, I think you and me were discussing that yesterday a little bit. Um, you know, that it, it really is, I mean, it, the, the cycle inversion is sort of stripped down to be exported to uh, Christianity in general. Um, they are trying to branch out a little bit of the, the, the very Calvinist uh, uh, sex. I thought I heard someone say yesterday that they didn't think Psy was a Calvinist. Yeah, he um, might not be. It's entirely possible, but I, I don't know. Some of the stuff he says does does seem to suggest that he, he holds a very Calvinist uh, theology. But. Well, I want to, and, and, and it's probably unfair to make these kind of judgments, but in my opinion, having watched Sai for a long time, I think he has an unexpected level of fame, and at this point, I think his his apologetic informs his theology 100%. I do not, I do not think he is genuine. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have no, no sense, uh, but I mean... But I have no well, sense of being genuine either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have no. What I mean is, I have no sense of what his theology is. Um, but my my sense of of, of him is uh, that he delights far too much in stumping people and humiliating people and dominating them, and that, which is why he sort of you know stresses this sort of shutting the mouth uh, the mouths of atheists. Um, it is this stripped-down version of presuppositionalism uh, exports very well, uh, precisely because if you've been sort of on the receiving end of uh, you know charges of systematic irrationality uh, and 
bad arguments and bad evidence, it's finally nice to be told by someone, oh, no, 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 we are the owners of logic and reason and rationality. Uh, this, is, this is in our bailiwick. Uh, and they have to defend the very use of evidence and reasons and logic and all of that. Uh, so, I mean, that's got to be, you know, terribly emotionally satisfying to turn the tables on, on people that way. Uh, so, it, Especially bringing this back to something we were saying earlier, um, because a lot of atheists are, are kind of smug about their, their claim that, that the religious are systematically irrational, then it would be particularly satisfying. Yeah. Um, but hmm. to... Uh, I think I, I find Psy offensive, uh, not necessarily... Or I, I find him offensive because he turns a question that I'm really interested in into a debating tactic, and I find that morally reprehensible. I mean, I'm genuinely interested in justifying my knowledge, but to, to, to do it in such a dishonest and, and aggressive way and to do it for the purpose of, of shutting people down that don't understand philosophy... Uh, it is. I, I find that frustrating. Well, I don't but, believe. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, but 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 uh, I don't think that that's what presuppositionalism is about in general. And yeah, I, I think that, that it is actually kind of an, an an interesting position, if not a well defended one. Right. Yeah. That that's my view actually. I think it's actually interesting, uh, but not not very well uh, defended uh, and and well argued and. Um, I mean, I just don't think. It, I also think that it's just not a very good uh, evangelical tool. Um, now, I mean, as we've already stated, that for for Calvinists, that doesn't matter so much, you know. But for those who are interested in in uh, in this uh, or tempted by this apologetic, you know, it just doesn't seem to con convince anyone or persuade anyone. I, I think that you know, we in the sort of the atheist camp um, have been sort of burning a lot of fuel. Arguing against this because it's novel and it, and 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 people have been stumped by it, um, and they they feel like ah you know I I, I got to sort this out and get back at the at, at this but really at, this is I, I said this before in another video with 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 John John at the dropout if this was the only apologetic out there on offer you know I'd put my feet up and 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 you know take a holiday because they're just not going to convince anybody with this um, you know the only Christians they're going to create with this are the ones that they they breed. Um, this isn't going to work. It's not very persuasive. This is not going to take people who are on the fence uh, and and bring them over to Christianity. I don't think. I think what it's going to do is, I mean, I think evidentialism uh, and sort of traditional proofs of God, like the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, are much much more um, likely to move a person in that direction. I don't know if if others agree with me on this, but that that's my view of it. I, I do feel the same way, yeah. Um, I, you know, when, when I hear it, I, it definitely seems like it's more of uh, preaching to the choir sort of thing. Um, it, it's meant to to kind of reinforce uh, amongst the ranks. Uh, and you, it, just because it's so confusing, I think, it, it, when you're inside the ranks and someone gives you a very complex argument and it, and it sort of, it, you know, there's this sort of confusion, um, because it's on your side, I think there is the tendency to just say, oh, well... That confusion is actually the proof that it's you know it's just so complex and so true that I just can't understand it right you know that that's the proof that it's God because I can't understand God and I can't understand that so clearly the two are connected right um, yeah so there is sort of this this weird reinforcement of you know I don't understand it therefore it must be true um, yes. it, it's sophisticated mm, very yeah very much so <laughs> you know and I like I like that idea you know that um it's it's sort of a response to feeling like they were on the the kind of the tail end of intellectual discussion, right? Um, 
I think, you know, it, how does he say it here? Um, when he goes into it, I mean, he's, he's talking about how um, what we're looking for here is a unity in our, in our worldview, like this, this coherence in our experience, a unity of experience, he calls it. Um, and he says, um, there is no unity in your life. Uh, you want no God who by his counsel provides the unity you need. Uh, such a God, you say, will allow for nothing new, and so you provide your own unity. Um, and then uh, a little later down, he says, um, you know, but on the other hand, my belief in God, I do have unity of my experience. And, uh, you know, it, it's not a result of my autonomous determination, but it's a result of something he says, uh, higher to mine and prior to mine based on God's counsel. And there's, there's, this, uh, there's this idea that, you know, um, that instead of, instead of trading in your own intellectual um, thoughts, you can trade in God's intellectual thoughts. Uh, and I think that's a very, that's a very compelling argument um, if you're inside the faith already. Exactly. If they can't defend uh, presuppositionalist apologetics, it's not because presuppositionalist apologetics are undefensible. It's because they don't understand it, and why would they? It's God's mind. Yeah, no, I agree. It gives them an, an out. It's very convenient. Yeah, I think I think one of the most uh, telling lines in this whole paper here is uh, one I'm just about to read here, and it's uh, it's this. Um, my unity is that of a child who walks with his father through the woods. This child is not afraid because its father knows all and is capable of handling all situations. Um, and I think that that pretty much sums it up right there. I mean, that certainty is based on an authority figure who they view as benevolent and omnipotent, right? And there's, you know, that that is a I I can see you know a great amount of comfort coming from from that argument um, if it, when it concludes in that, right? Yeah, one of the unique things about, or I mean, I don't know of any other argument or or method of of apologetics that any Christian would claim is outlined in detail how to do it in the Bible itself. And I think that's a huge part of this too. It kind of plays into that because, I mean, I mean I've mean, i listened to presuppositionalists uh, defend their method based on the Bible where they say that, oh no, this these verses here in Proverbs clearly spell out how we're supposed to do this. And, and the, the misinterpretation of those texts is just mind-blowing to me. But that goes into it too. Like if, if this method is, is, is shown how to do, if we're shown how to do this in the Bible itself, then it cannot possibly be wrong. You know, it may, and like everything else in the Bible, you know, we may struggle to understand it. We may have to grow in our knowledge of it. Right. But at the end of the day, we can be confident that however we are, however little of it we understand and how poorly we articulate it. I mean, we are doing it exactly like God has told us to do it specifically. Or in the case of some people, very well articulated, but still not very convincing. Like, um, uh, what's his name? The guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, what's his name? C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, yeah, yeah. Very, very articulate, but still not convincing. Yeah, he has some really bizarre arguments. He convinced me a lot in my early days as a believer, but uh, I gave him up pretty quick. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I just, I just love this document uh, as far as just being, uh, you know, almost uh, what's what's the word? Um, almost like they're admitting so much up front um, in in this document. You know, there's there's it, they weigh out really well. And I think any atheist who is interested in presuppositionalism should probably read this. I think I would echo you guys' sentiment that this is probably one of the more useful documents in understanding. Where precepts coming from, not necessarily the argument itself, but uh, you know, it gives you where a presuppositionalist may be coming to you from, um, and I think that's that's useful.
Yeah, uh, where where it's short um, is uh, on the actual development of the of the actual argument, uh, and it's also uh, missing um, where, how they find this in the Bible. Um, mm. Elijah was was alluding to this, like presuppositionalists. They have to explain where were the presuppositionalists, you know, 500 years ago. Where were they, you know, a thousand years ago, right? Like this, this seems very newfangled, right? So they've got to go in and and do some proof texting, find, you know, things that they can pull out, and establish that no, no, this is this is what Paul was doing, in Corinth and you know Galatia and stuff like that. This, this is what he was doing, and this is what we should have been doing all along. And then they sort of can look back through the history of theology, and they can say, "Ah, oh, yeah, see here, he was doing it here, and so and so was doing it there." Um, and there's, I mean, there's some truth in that, uh, but uh, not as much as they'd like. Yeah, to some respect, though, like personally, I'm not convinced. I, I don't think the argument being traditional makes it any stronger, and it being new makes it any weaker, to me at least, as a non-believer. But to a, a, a believer, they may very well find it much stronger if it's traditional. But I personally don't care. I mean, if it's new, well, whatever, it's, it's an argument. But well, I, I mean, within the Protestant faiths, well, with all, within, you know, Catholicism, I mean, they, they all think that they're, that, that sort of, the way they're doing things is the way it's always been done and, and yeah. should always have been done and, and uh, you know you, you ask yourself you know where were the where where were, where were the Protestants in the eighth century well they didn't exist yet you know they wouldn't exist for centuries more right um, well th their understanding of it is that well no the, the church kind of lost its way and you know it took people like you know Martin Luther and Calvin and others to sort of help us find our way and and sort of Re-express the faith um, and, and the articles of faith, and and uh, you know wrestle Christianity out, out of the hands of Roman Catholicism, uh, and and put it you know back into uh, the the hands of ordinary Christians who could practice it right. Uh, and so this might just be sort of seen as the same kind of thing. You know, we've gone astray in our apologetics. This is the proper way that it should have been done, and we have forsaken too much with these. Traditional uh, styles of apologetics. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that for for Protestants, I mean, the fact that as long as they can trace it back to the Bible in some way, they right. don't care what happened. They don't not care what came between then and now. I mean, because they right. they uh, assume that most of the church, the history of the church, including most Protestant denominations that aren't them today, are astray anyway. Right? They they don't particularly care what was traditional and what developed over time and and like I said, as, as long as they're getting back to the Bible, it, it's almost a mark in their favor, really. If this is something that's been hidden, you know, the mysteries of God that have been hidden in the Word, and then they discover it right nowadays. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that worked for Paul. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool. Well, maybe I'll just uh, read one more quote here, and then we'll we'll wrap it up, and I'll, I'll get you guys to I don't know. Give me give me your, some of your final thoughts, maybe, and uh, you know if if you don't have any final thoughts, then you can just uh, you know swear at me and 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 leave her if you want. Um, but uh, well, just here, just uh, just let me let me read this out here, and we'll we'll go for it. Um, um, this is exactly the sort of God that I. This is right at the end of of the of the paper here. So this is exactly the sort of God that I need. Without such a God, without the God of the Bible, the God of authority, the God who is self-contained and therefore incomprehensible to men, there would be no reason in anything. 
No human being can explain in the sense of seeing through all things, but only he who believes in God has the right to hold that there is an explanation at all. Now, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, if you guys... If you guys had any thoughts on that, um, to me that I I don't know I, I get I get kind of up in uh, I don't know it gets my dander up a little bit to have someone suggest that I can't know an explanation or you know that that knowledge is, is somehow unaccessible to me and I know that's not what he's saying there but he's definitely phrasing it in that in that way um, and so you know I was I was curious to get your guys your guys's thoughts on that you know just as a as a parting thing because that kind of ties into cyclones which is something I was uh, you know it's it's almost inevitable that we're going to uh, discuss them when we're talking about presuppositionalism um, because it is kind of the forum that does kind of uh, get in our face quite a bit these days and so I you know I, I was just curious if you guys thought that that was um, you know is, are the cyclones wrong in reading it that way that um, that perhaps you know explanation is you know you don't have a right to an explanation if you're not using or presupposing a god at the base of it well they think that you're at odds with yourself right you're 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 trying to take this machine gun that's mounted on, on an emplacement and you're just trying to shoot at the emplacement that the machine gun is standing on and it, it, it can't really be done. There's no, there's no rational way to do this. It, it's it's self-contradictory. You're, you're just being inconsistent with yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the cyclones are sometimes talk about like, well, you can't have knowledge. Well, the way that they should be putting it is, well, within within the conceptual resources of your worldview, knowledge is, is incoherent. It, it, it's a meaningless concept. It's only within my worldview that knowledge is possible. But they don't actually deny that other people do have knowledge uh, because there, in fact, is a God, and, and that God is the guarantor of, of, of our beliefs, the reliability of our senses and reason and all of that stuff. Um, but they do think that there, you are blocked certain kind of knowledge. Um, uh, and that's the kind of knowledge that can only be, be directly bestowed by God. Um, so, you know, what Van Til is alluding to in that last bit is this idea that, look, you know, my, my apologetic is not going to be persuasive to you. That's not my fault. In, in a sense, that's not even your fault. Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the Holy Spirit has to take some action here. Uh, but, you know, you at least need to understand how I see it and why I say what I do. Um, it's just, it is sort of uh, internal to the logic of how I view the world uh, that I say these things. It's not, you know, it, I'm, I'm not just trying to be uh, a dick when I say these things. This is part of my worldview. Uh, and, it, and part of my worldview is that certain kinds of knowledge are, are, are denied to you and that my apologetic is not going to be very persuasive to you. That's, that's what I would predict on my worldview. That's how he sees it. Sure, Elijah, you got anything uh, to add to that? Or uh, a final thought, even? It's, it's, it ends like a sermon, you know, a little bit of po poetry, a little bit of, um, you know, hey, at the end of the day, it's all about finding deeper meaning in life, right? Mm -hmm. Which is how these things usually end, right? That little chance to get at you and sort of, a, you know, really have you step back and, and, and in that moment of quiet and think about what he just said, right? But I, I do think that he is being genuine in this article. I think this is probably as honest as these guys get is when they're talking this way. You know what I mean? When they, when they're really, I, I do think that he really does live his life or believe he thinks that he lives his life this way, right? With, with God and everything providing the foundation for all meaning. I mean, I, I think there are people like him. I've known people like who, who say, and I believe them when they say it, that, you know, if, if someone could show them there was no God, they would just kill themselves. 
right? That would be there would be nothing, no point to anything. And I, I think, and I, I realize he's talking specifically about reason, right? And as in rationality, but I, I do think it translates over to um, you know a reason for living at all. Right. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Gibran, I would love to hear your thoughts, man. Um, yeah, I mean, in some, in, to some extent, this is his first real presentation of the argument. Uh, I mean, or or really presenting the consequences in a, in a sort of forthright manner. He kind of beats around the bush through the entire thing. Uh, but this is where he really lays his cards on the table and says, your basic epistemic system uh, is is incoherent unless you assume the existence of my God. Um, he doesn't provide the argument for that, and, and I think that's that's the flaw. But um, yeah, I uh, it it is interesting to see him talking um, in this this very honest manner. I, I agree. It, it's the, the entire article is interesting for that reason. Uh, it's it's a very thought provoking uh, piece of work in general, um, and and to some extent, I I guess to to, to his final point. I, I want to answer his, his, his challenge. I want to, to, to learn how to justify my knowledge. I don't I can't do it. I can't can't justify my knowledge, but I'd like to at some point. So I don't know. I, I can't say much to that, but that's that's my opinion. I think that's a val that's a valiant goal, I believe. I guess it's been a very lovely conversation. Uh, Absolutely, guys. Uh, I would just like to echo that. I mean, it, this has been such a such a pleasure. Um, ever since I've read this, I've really wanted to discuss it with somebody else, just get some other um, ideas and points of view. And uh, you know, this has been really enlightening, got me a lot to think about. So I, you know, I just like to thank all you guys for your participation. Um, Elijah, sorry we couldn't get you in there a little earlier. Um, I hope I hope you have fun at your uh, Hobbit movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what it's all about, man. I'm excited. I I do apologize. I wish I could have been here. I feel like I missed out on a lot. Do you have your elf suit on? Um, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> okay. No hairy feet. He's going to the dwarf. No, no, I'm, I'm, transpor I'm transporting the real nerds. I'm not one of the real nerds. <laughs> Though I'm pretty close, I will give you that. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Um, maybe I'll just... Uh, well, I'll thanks for hosting this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, guys. Uh, you know, um, I really respect all your guys' opinions on this, and I'm glad I'm glad we could all get uh, get together and talk about it. Um, so I'm just going to end the hangout here uh, real fast, and if anybody wants to hang around and just and just talk or chat here, we can we can do that. But again, um, West Coast Atheists would uh, will like to thank you guys for this this wonderful discussion. Yep, thank you, thank you. It's great fun. All right, bye bye, guys. Bye. Good night. See you.